the one I recorded on Friday night, you're going to be pissed at the books we did. Uh-oh, what'd you do? In fact, we, we mentioned it a couple of times on recording. Scott's going to be pissed. Uh, he did Iron Man 1, or, yeah, 154, where uh, Iron Man's got the stealth armor. Ah. And I did Batman 433, which is the first part of The Many Deaths of Batman. The silent issue? Yeah. Are oh, you f- that's one of my favorite issues of all time because I, I love the reaction everybody has to to his death, especially Dick Grayson when they're walking down the street and he sees the paper and all that. Yeah, yeah. Oh, you know what I didn't man. Mention, I didn't mention until you – because I didn't even think of it until you just said it right now. That reminds me of the scene in The Godfather when Michael finds out his father got shot. Right. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, I hadn't Never occurred that, to you're me right. just yeah. now. You're right. Because that's exactly how he finds out. He's walking through the streets with his girlfriend. He sees the newspaper. He sees the paper. It doesn't say if he's alive or dead or something like that. Yeah. Yeah, I just watched that again recently. It was on TV. We were flipping channels and and, uh, I forget what part it was. That was fairly early in the movie. My wife looked, she just gives me that long suffering look, like really seriously. And then the next, you know, we both were sucked in, watched the entire movie all the way to the end. No, oh, I loved it. I, both were part one and two. I just absolutely loved yeah, it. Yeah. I'm the same way. I lo- I can't, I, I've, I'm often, uh, challenged to decide which one I like better. And I, I can't really decide. I think they're great. I, I liked, uh, uh I have a tough ago. time with it, but I've, I've settled in on part two. Because I love the contrast between Vito Corleone taking care of his family and Michael Corleone alienating his family. Right. Just the way they contrast it with the time shift and all. I I, I just love the way it, it you know the way it just pieces together. I think it loses so much when they try to do that chronological version of it. I was just going to mention that I was going to ask you if you'd ever seen it because I was working in video when that came out and uh, I kind of like it. But I see what you mean about you know how it does kind of change the the flow of the story. Mm-hmm. But I I did like that version. Yeah, I, I actually did too for a long time until I really sat down and thought about the movie more, and then I thought part of what makes part two so good is because of that contrast, because Vito is so much more of a stand-up guy than his son is, even though his son has the veneer. Right. So I, I just uh, yeah I, I can we could do a Godfather podcast I'm telling you I could just go on and on and on I love those we should movies. do we should do a, we should do like a Godfather special or something I'd I'd totally be down for that I don't know if uh, I don't know if Honeywell would be game for that or not but I know you and I could probably carry on quite the conversation because I don't say much about it but I mean I consider myself a big fan of the of those first two movies well we, the we third could, one we could I couldn't tell you a shit about because I watched it one time and walked away going. Um, sorry, but you done lost it, you know, and I, I've never seen it again. So I, uh, that's probably not fair. I probably need to watch it again at some <laughs> point, but most everybody except Scott Rife tells me don't waste my time watching it again. So if you watch it and don't think about the first two movies, it's a watchable <laughs> story. It's not a terrible movie, but right. when, when you compare it to the first two and you try and look at it in conjunction with them, it falls off the map so far that it just... It, it it makes it seem a lot worse than it is. So it's the Superman Returns of Godfather movies, is what you're saying? Yeah, I'd say that's that's pretty pretty much a good analogy. <laughs> I would I would think I mean if we were going to do a show on it, it would uh, rather than do a uh, like a commentary on it, it might be just kind of do a scene by scene uh, just discussion. discussion. Yeah, yeah, I think I'd rather that's a movie. I think I'd much rather do just a straight up discussion of it. Maybe we'll put that on the on the burner for one day and, and yeah. sit down and do it. That could be fun. Let's do that'll be our Christmas episode. What for bins? 
<laughs> for, not, it was a joke. I, I was just saying, just in general. I may, like I may to... leave this in. So just to, to let the people who are listening tell us, do you want to hear it? Oh, you know what they're going to say. You know what they're going to say. They're going to say, F- you, I don't want to hear your shit. <laughs> Shut up and talk about comic books. I don't even like to talk about comics. Back to the bin. Hey everybody and welcome to Back to the Bins. I'm Paul Spataro and I am joined today by my very good buddy, Mr. Scott H. Gardner. Hey, how's it going? It's going good. How you doing? <laughs> I'm doing great. And uh, I like doing that because people can't tell if it's me or if it's the LMD, so that's <laughs> Well, you never know. Well, you know what? I'm going to I'm going to interrupt us right now and I'm going to throw in a little LMD talk. Let me explain to everybody what we're doing here. Scott and I recorded a couple of months ago, uh, and we did uh, two books. Scott did a Thor issue, and I did a DC. I won't even bother mentioning it because you're never going to hear it. Because I don't remember what it was anyway. I, no, I do, I do remember what it was, but I just don't want to mention it because who knows? Maybe I'll choose to do it again someday. But what happened was as we were in our post-synopsis discussion of Scott's issue, uh, the call broke up. When we reestablished the connection, the recording only kept my end of the conversation, but for some reason did not get Scott's end of the conversation. So I have that for you. I'm going to put that on here now. So basically, you're going to join that episode in progress. You're going to hear Scott's synopsis. You're going to hear some of the discussion of the book. And then we're going to come back and join you, and we're going to do the two books that we have for you. So you'll get three books, uh, two of which will be complete. So uh, for now... Listen to the other one, and we'll join you in a couple of minutes. Hey. You got to change that f- picture, man. You got to <laughs> change it, like, right now. I changed it, and then I changed it back, because I love it so. Oh, what the hell is that thing? It's like a pig man. Yeah, it's a pig man, all right. <laughs> everybody gets a little thrown off by it, and I just like keeping everybody just a little off. He's got a little bit too much penis face, you know what I'm saying? It's just... <laughs> People have been known to say that about me. Yeah. <laughs> no, that's penis head. Penis head. Back to the bin. Hey, there we go. You know, I was just thinking about it, and, and I understand why I'm tired now. What's that? Because in the podcasting world of time travel, I recorded with Bill last night. I'm recording with you tonight. That means I've done a week's worth of living in one day. <laughs> so, of course, I'm tired. How'd it go last night? All right. All right no, you know, we did, uh, what did we do? We did uh, Spider-Man 136. When Which one uh, was that? Harry becomes the Green Goblin. Ah, and we did JLA 109, which is kind of a weird one. It's got the the cover's got Superman bursting in, saying, uh, "I've learned from my sources that one of you is quitting the jail." One of you has betrayed us. Yes, I remember that one. That's a good one. And uh, good, anyway, and then it's it's, it's, it's an Eclipso story. Yeah, 
But this, but a, it, it's weirdly cover, I mean, together. Is that Nick Cardi cover on that one? I believe it is a Nick Cardi. Yeah, love that one. But you, you, you know, you'll have to listen to the episode to get the whole flavor. I, I listen to all of them eventually. <laughs> you, I'm hoping, uh, I'm hoping that you either uh, cheer or curse at the radio based on your po- your uh, Facebook post. It, it, it depends. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe sometimes a little of both in the in the same episode. All right, well. Sons of bitches. Long as long as we get a strong reaction, I think it's okay. <laughs> No matter which way it goes. Uh, I'm going to have to wait a couple of days on Guardians after it comes out. Because I don't think I'm, gonna get to that. I don't think I'm getting that to that until Sunday or Monday after it comes out. So I'm hoping to avoid any big time spoilers. But I, I don't think that's going to be a huge spoiler movie. You never know. I'm totally going to spoil it for you. I'm going to post it on our Facebook group. I'm going to be texting <laughs> you. Every five minutes I'm going to text you another line of dialogue. <laughs> <laughs> Oh man! Well, what do you think? You All right, well, dive into this yeah, one. Yeah, you know, you want to bring it in? You want me to bring it in? And I'm I'm good at one way or the other. Do I? I have the first book, don't I? Because we do, do Marvel first. You do. You, you can go ahead and bring it in, and I'll I'll then hand it off to me at some point, and I'll go right. ahead and run with it. <clears throat> hey everybody, and welcome to Back to the Bins. <laughs> I am Paul Spataro, and I am joined by my very good buddy. Scott H. Gardner. Hello. Welcome back from Assistant Editors Month, Scott. Hey, how's it going? It's and, correct. Uh, you know, uh, somebody on Assistant Editors Month made a smart-ass remark about you and Bill getting off scot-free for, for quite some stretch of time. And <sighs> Yeah, okay. Keep up with the wisecracks. You know? <laughs> oh, yeah. No, it was, it was scot-free. I, that's right. Yeah. I, yeah. I, don't, I don't remember who said that, but it was, uh, I thought it was amusing. Yeah. Well, that's because you're not Scott. That's why you thought it was amusing. <laughs> yeah, maybe they were talking about Rifen or, or uh, maybe Scotty. No, I know exactly who they were talking about, all right? Uh, I've been trying. I've been trying. I'm here. Yes, you are. So, uh just by way of preamble, you did uh, you had kind of a good score at a comic store recently? Oh damn, yes, yes I did. Um, <laughs> you sprung one on me because I've got it in a in a separate stack to to talk about in another show, but I can go grab them if you want me to to Up run to you. through. If you want to save quick, it for com- Comics Monthly Monday, you can. But if you wanted, to, I, I was you can. yeah, I was actually going to throw it out there for Comics Monthly Monday, so we have something to talk about. But in short. I got a ton of great books um, recently. Yeah, it was I, it was one of those finds where I'm like, is somebody stupid? Does somebody know what is in this bin? You know, it's almost one of those things where you want to go grab the the you know the the proprietor, or the guy at the counter, or whatever, and be like, dude, I don't think these are supposed to be here. You know? <laughs> but uh, yeah, I mean, I, mean I, I, I saw what you posted on Facebook. There's some gems in there. Oh, I mean, so many good books, a, a lot of really good stuff. But the the two that I was most happy with, that I was most like, oh my god, I can't believe this is here, was a Marvel team up number one, like the original '70s Spider-Man team up book, right? Mm-hmm. Marvel team up number one. I have been hunting this damn book on the cheap for for years now. I mean, it's it's been a very long time because I have an almost almost complete collection of Marvel team up. I, you know, going into that comic shop, I think I lacked six issues, I think. 
walked out lacking. I still lack like three issues, but another I like, one. I like was, some of the very very late issues, but I think oh really? I think one through a hundred I have clean. Oh wow! You need to send me a list then, because see the latter stuff I can find a dime a dozen, but the, it's it's those really really early issues that I've had the trouble with. Yeah, well, but yeah, finding a number one in the dollar bin, I was like, holy shit, you know. So I got number one. Uh, I got a bunch of other stuff, but the the other one that made me really happy was uh, I got a Fantastic Four number forty nine. Wow. Now that one's a little whipped, but I, it's complete, you know. So I mean, for a dollar, for a dollar, I don't care how whipped it is. Yeah, it could, it could have mean, no cover for a dollar. I mean, even a whipped copy of that book will command some pretty decent money because it's a you know it's an important book. You know, it's Galactus and Silver Surfer and all that. So yeah, oh yeah. But I mean, there were some other really good books in there that you know didn't have any particular like value or importance, but it was just like nice finds for me because I found a uh, um, uh, All Star Western number seven. Now the the old original All Star Western just prior to when uh, when Jonah Hex debuted in the title. And it's weird because I'm I'm collecting those, you know, because all I ever wanted, the only reason I ever got into that was, of course, for Jonah Hex. But every couple of years, I find another issue of the pre-Jonah issues, and it's weird because I've I'm, I've been getting them in reverse order. So the one I just got the other day was number seven. So now that becomes the earliest issue that I have in my collection. So I, mm-hmm. I'm going backwards as I'm getting them. But it's really it's interesting, at, you know, from like a just like a time capsule perspective, because, you know, it's this nice little snapshot of what they were trying to do with the title and trying to make it, you know, exciting and original and everything before Jonah made the big splash and changed the entire direction of the book. So it's just interesting because a lot of the same creators are involved like john albano and tony Niga and these guys are, are all they're all in the mix right but it just hasn't happened yet and so i would think those neat. early issues uh well i don't think you know pre-jonah i don't think they'd command high dollar amounts but i think there's they just be hard to come by yeah yeah they are yeah i i, I don't see them very often this particular one i hadn't ever seen before but uh, but great cover and uh, it looks interesting. I haven't read it yet, but it looks interesting. You know, just thumbing through it, it looked like there's some good stuff in it because the the character that was in it before uh, Jonah came along was just called the Outlaw, which I think I know I could be dead wrong about this, but I think it's actually Billy the Kid. I think. Oh, that's cool. And then um, that particular issue, there's like I think there's three stories. There's like a there's like the outlaw story. There's another story that may or may not be a reprint. I'm not sure. And then there's a um, El Diablo story, which mm. I was hoping was going to be by um, by uh, Adams, but it's not. I forget who it is by, but it, it still looked good. But Adams did a couple of El Diablo stories that are just friggin' awesome. You know, really, really nice art in those. But that particular one is not Adams. I but can the, honestly say I don't I don't think I've ever seen an Adams book that I didn't like the art. Even the recent stuff that he did that people were so critical of, like Batman Odyssey. The story, mm-hmm. the story is out there. But I still think the art is pretty good. Uh, I could I could see some improvement on the inking, but I still right. think I still think the artwork is good. I think he's 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 still I think he's still a very talented artist. I don't think oh, I don't think he's lost that. I think his style has changed. I think there's a there's a difference between man you've just lost it and well you know this is very different than you know what you used to do. 
So I can see him being one of those guys, and I understand he is one of those guys. He gets really pissed when people tell him, well, you know, I like your old stuff better, which to me, that's, that is kind of an insulting thing to say to somebody. It's basically saying you're not as good as you used to be. I wouldn't say that, but I will be honest and say I don't care for his newer stuff as much as I love his older stuff. Well, yeah, you know, you know I, I think a part of the problem with his newer stuff is he has been copied so much and so many other artists have used him as inspiration that his artwork doesn't seem as groundbreaking as it did, you know, because he broke that ground 30, 40 years ago. Right. So, you know, he's, he's not, he's not continuing to blaze a trail. He's just continuing to do what he had done for many years. So I think his work is still good. It's just not that you look at it and say, Oh, wow. I, you know, this, this is something I can't find anywhere else because other people have, you know, have aped his work and copied it to the point where, uh, you know, you can find similar stuff out there now. That's very true. Yeah, that's definitely true. I do love his stuff, though. I really do. I've always been a big fan of his. And I, and I agree with you. Off the top of my head, I can't think of anything of his I've ever looked at and, th- and thought, Bleh, you know, I, I love anything that he does. Yeah, I mean, I've but... seen some of the, he had done. Uh... Oh, I don't even remember what the title of it was. The most recent thing that I had gotten from him, he had done a uh, uh, an X-Men miniseries with Wolverine. You know, took place, like, before the X-Men were formed. Mm-hmm. And some of the artwork there looked a little scratchy, but I'm putting right. that on the inking. I'm not putting that on the penciling. Right. Now, some of it, I think he may have inked his own work, and maybe he didn't spend enough time to really, you know, tighten it up as much as he could have. So then he would... He'd have to take the blame on that, but I still see the, the layouts and I see the quality in there, so I'm still not overly critical of it. It's just not, you know, again, it's not groundbreaking and it's not, you know, it's not Tom Palmer inking him. Well, he's one of those guys that's that's to me is in that elite club for me personally, where I really don't care what the project is he's working on, you know, and I'm talking about, again about his older stuff, where I'll pretty much follow him, you know, and and I have followed him. Pretty much anywhere I can pick it. So, for, for example, I'm digging through a, a back issue box somewhere, you know, and I come across a Neil Adams. Well, probably the best example I can think of is when I was a kid, friggin hated the X-Men, couldn't care less about the X-Men. They were just totally off my radar. But if I'm flipping through a back issue bin and I come across some Neil Adams X-Men, I'm going to pick that shit up. Because it's Neil Adams, you know, and it looks awesome. So even if it turns out the story sucks, characters suck, I don't care about any of it, it's beautiful. Gotta own it. So I ended up buying up a lot of, uh, you know, Neil Adams X-Men just as an example of, you know, I I love the art. And now I'm really glad I have them because that stuff is, you know, it's pricey. You can't touch that stuff these days. So I'm glad to have it. But he was one of those artists I I did that with. If, If I was just flipping through somewhere... Regardless of the character or the, or the project it was, if it was classic Neil Adams, I'd go ahead and scoop it up. And there's not a lot of artists I can say that about. You know, that's a pretty short list. Uh, yeah, I'm, I mean, I remember Adams, uh, even in the early days when I was collecting, when his stuff wasn't that old. You know, we're only talking three or four years to, uh, before that he had done some of it. And even then it was starting to get a little pricey, you know, by that standard. You know, right. if, if, you had, if you had a run that would be going for, say... Say that run in the X-Men that he did, which was around issue 53 to 58, something like or 53 to 60 something, actually. But if the issues right before it and right after it were going for a buck each, his issues would be 3 or $4 each. So they were still, 
you know, significant or considered significant even at that time. So they were always uh, very collectible as far as I was concerned. And, and, and it wasn't even just the fact that, you know, you thought they had value because, like you said, the artwork was beautiful. Most definitely. So, and, and I remember, oh, I got my copy of, of Marvel Team-Up number one. It's got to be at least 30 years ago, maybe 35 and it's not a it's you know it's probably in fine condition mm-hmm. and i still paid significantly more than the one dollar you paid for it <laughs> i probably paid five or six bucks for it back then good so <laughs> you like these no, you like was... wasting my money it's uh, all right i'll keep that in mind no, it was it was definitely a shock it was definitely like oh my god i i really can't believe that this is in here so well, yeah if I, if I was going to a dollar bin I have Marvel Team Up number one. If I was going through a dollar bin and I saw it, I'd still buy it. <laughs> oh yeah, definitely. Yeah, that that's actually becoming a harder and harder thing for me these days is resisting the urge to buy books that I already own that I know damn well. I mean, there's a difference between you accidentally buy a book that you already have because you're not aware that you have it because you're old and senile, like I'm getting to be with these things. So I have to take my list with me these days when I, when I'm back issue hunting or I, or I would do that constantly. So there's a difference between that. What I'm talking about is when you're just, you're digging through like a 50 cent bin or, you know, so a really cheap, good bin of stuff. And you come across those issues that just kill you. Like, why the hell is this in the 50 cent bin? This is an awesome book. Somebody should love this and give it a home. You know, you almost feel like turning to the guy next to you and saying, please buy this. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. I, and I, I want somebody to I'll appreciate. be honest with you. I've been that asshole. I've been that guy that's pulling stuff out going, oh, my God, did you see this? Did you know this was And people are looking at you like, leave me the fuck alone. You know, it's like I, you know, I'm trying to do what I'm doing. Stop pulling out stuff and showing me. But I do that. You know, it's like I pull these things out and these great back issues. And every once in a while, I, I have to be honest, I, you know, it, it's I just have to pull it out and go. I just I have to own another. Co- I can't leave this poor book. This poor unloved classic. <laughs> I can't leave it here. You know, it's like I end up, you know, with you know twenty come copies. To, come to daddy, little mobile team up. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Daddy's here. <laughs> I've got to stop doing that. But yeah, I, I'm I'm very guilty of that. And, it's and like I, I don't remember what her comment was, but I did get a kick out of your wife putting some comment when you posted the books oh. on Facebook, and she was she said something like, "You know, you just said you were going in there for a minute, and the next thing I know, you spent twenty five dollars on books." Yeah, she was not happy. <laughs> well, at least the way she wrote it on Facebook, it actually seemed amusing, not like she was being you know pissy or anything. Well, I let her. I let her knowing what I had spent before she knew what I had spent. I let her spend as much as she wanted in Coles. So she really couldn't say too much afterwards. And, and, but the thing is, she's a smart woman. She's smarter than I am. And she was on to me later. She's like, <laughs> it occurs to me that you let me do this because you probably spent more money than you were supposed to at the comic shop. Am I right? And I'm like, I can't lie. <laughs> I can't lie. You see right through me. That was very true. Well, the thing is, I could have spent like 10 times what I spent. The as amazing as the books were that I got, there was a lot of stuff that I left set there that I, I wish now that I'd had you know the 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 money to actually get them because despite myself 
I'm becoming intrigued with Marvel cosmic stuff, like classic Marvel cosmic stuff and wanting to go back and get it. And I know that there was a Starlin Warlock issue in the dollar bin that day I that I probably it. should. Yeah, I should have nabbed it. I really should have nabbed it. And I didn't. I left it sit there and now I'm kicking myself. So as next well, time I go, if it's still there, it's going to be my, I'm sorry. I said, as well, you should be kicking yourself. Yeah, I should have grabbed it. Well, a little stolen book. <laughs> I, yeah, love, I love uh, stolen cosmic stuff. See, I'm intent now that uh, that I'm going to get up to speed on all that because the book that I see this is a nice segue because the book that I picked tonight I picked specifically because I'm on a a Marvel cosmic kick right now. So ooh teaser, yeah. So instead so of introducing the it. book now, let's talk about something else. <laughs> <laughs> so Batman, no. Uh, <laughs> It's, uh, you know, I'm on a, you know, well, Guardians comes out shortly, but but I don't know when this episode will go up, so maybe it'll already be out by the time. It uh, absolutely will already be out before this episode comes up. All right, so I'm I'm getting myself back up to speed again on Guardians. Now, a little bit of history with me and Guardians. Like, when they announced the Guardians movie, to me, the Guardians of the Galaxy were, you know, like, what was the dude's name? Rondu or whatever. And, you know, the big... Yandu, the big Somebody thin-headed has, guy. And... Yandu is in this movie. He is yeah, right. No, no, I know he is. But you know what I mean? I mean it's, to me, like, Guardians of the Galaxy were, like, the classic Char- guys that Charlie I remember. 27, Yandu. Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah. Martin X. Those guys. And so, uh, what's his name? Uh, damn it. Van Sastro. Couldn't remember for a second. Oh, I don't even know which character that is. I'll be that's, honest That's the He's got the blue and silver suit. And uh, basically, he, he his story is that he was from the 20th century and he became an astronaut and he left oh vince astro yes vance astro vance astro that's it yeah vince would be his brother (laughs) vince vance whatever but no i mean to me that that was those guys so they announced the movie and then that that um conceptual art image or whatever it was came out and i'm like who the hell are these guys you know and then Shortly after that, you know, people started putting names to the images that were on there. And I'm like, okay, Drax, I know the name doesn't look like the dude. Gamora, okay, I kind of know who she is. Star-Lord, all right, I know the name, but that's totally not the dude. You know, and I'm going through the whole thing and going, how the hell are these the Guardians of the Galaxy? And I realized that, like, I really didn't know anything about the project at all. And so I started tracking down like how are these the guardians and and where did that all come from and tracked it all back of course to the whole annihilation thing and ended up getting a hold of basically the entire annihilation saga and dove into it really going into it with no interest at all beyond the fact that i just wanted to be boned up on on it enough for when the movie came out I never have been interested in Marvel Cosmic. I, it was just one of those facets of comics that just never interested me whatsoever. But Annihilation, just by the nature of the beast, sucked me right in. It's good storytelling, especially the, the sequel, the Annihilation Conquest, is really the one that sucked me in. Of course, that's the one that leads directly into the new Guardians, the ones that right. are going to be in the movie. So this was about, oh, I don't know, a year or so ago. I've talked about this before, so listeners will probably remember better than I do how long ago this was. But it was around the time that they announced the movie. So fast forward to today. As we record this, the movie comes out at the end of the week. I'm psyched. I want to go see this movie. But I, you know, I wanted to kind of 
get back up to speed again, you know, just kind of refamiliarize myself one more time. So I'm on a reread right now of all the same stuff again. And uh, and I'm just starting into the Guardians series proper, the the one before the the latest incarnation, which is really good stuff. I love Pelletier's uh, artwork on mm. that. Really good stuff. And as I'm reading through it, I find that suddenly I'm interested in a lot of the peripheral characters that I never really knew before, and and have been seeking out, um, you know, the different appearances of these characters and the different histories of the characters. And as I was researching one of the characters and looking at places that the character had appeared before, I suddenly realized, hey, I have that book and I've never read it. So that's where tonight's book comes from. The book that I'm going to cover tonight is Thor number 305. This is the March 1981 cover dated issue originally 50 cents on this one covered by Keith Pollard. Now, the guy basically just set the cover up for you. It's this guy that looks like he's on fire or maybe he's got like the Cartman like, ah, my ass is on fire type of thing because it's hard to tell where these flames are coming from. They could easily be coming out of his butt. He's holding Thor's hammer. That's, Thor that's is actually un- his cape. Just Yeah, I, I know. But doesn't it look like maybe he's has well, like the, flaming if, if gas? If the cover image was the only thing you had to go by, it, yeah, it looks like he's farting. <laughs> he's farting flames. Yeah, he's got flaming gas. I love it. He's holding Thor's hammer in one hand and he's holding unconscious Thor by the cape in the other hand. And it looks like he's just going to clout the daylights out of him. And the car just says cry of the death angel. And not knowing who this was, just looking at the cover, I assumed that this was another God. I kind of thought maybe it was like Apollo or somebody. I really didn't know who this was. And it turns out that this is a character that was in the Silver Surfer miniseries that led up to one of the Annihilations. I can't remember if it was Annihilation 1 or Annihilation Conquest. I don't remember, but it was one of the minis. He's a Herald of Galactus, and he looks a little bit different in the Annihilation stuff, but it's the same character. So I was like, ooh, I got to read this, you know, when, when I realized who it was. Yeah, he originally appeared in the FF around issue, I think, 121. Something like that. As, as a herald of Galactus. Yeah, it's probably footnoted in here somewhere. That's one of the glorious things I was noticing about this issue is there's footnotes galore, which I love that sort of thing. I, I wish they did more of that. Uh, let's see here. The story is written actually by two writers. It's Mark Gruenwald and Ralph Macchio are the writers. Keith Pollard and Chick Stone are the artists. And I'm not going to go into everybody else that worked on the book. Uh, stories entitled Hark the Herald Angels Sing. So we got Thor and he's streaking over New York City and thinking about how beautiful it is in the wintertime and how much it kind of reminds him of uh, eternal Asgard. And he gets all kind of homesick about Asgard and everything. Yeah, well, and, well. yeah exactly. He's, he's awful sappy for a god. He, in this era, yes, most definitely. Yeah, he was very uh, melancholic a lot of the time. And he's flying around, and he sees this... I was going to describe him as a department store Santa, but really he's just kind of a sad-looking, like, like uh, what do you call it, Salvation Army-style Santa, standing on a street corner, and these street toughs start giving him a, a hard time, and they're roughing him up. So Thor lands, 
and he basically chases them into an alley, and he's intent on whooping the hell out of him when they tell him, no, no, you got it all wrong. That Santa wasn't a Santa. He was actually a drug dealer, and they were trying to deliver a little bit of vigilante justice. So Thor realizes that he had the whole situation wrong, lectures them about you know vigilante justice, which I always think is very funny when a vigilante lectures someone else about vigilante justice. That doesn't really work, I don't think. Because... At the end of the day, despite being a god and an Avenger and everything, isn't Thor technically still a vigilante? He's not like he's a cop or something, right? I guess at this point, the Avengers were kind of sanctioned by the government, so he would have a little bit more uh, basis to, uh, you know, a little bit more basis for his authority. Yeah, but I, but I guess. certainly started out as a vigilante. Right. So he says, uh, all right, my bad. I'll go chase Santa down. Here's the only part of the entire story that I didn't like is that you turn the page and Thor's like, well, I guess he got away. I'm like, really, Thor? <laughs> you suck, dude. He literally says, Venice, twould seem I cannot uh, make good on my vow to use this night. Perhaps on the morrow. So essentially he says, ah, screw it, I'll, I'll worry about it tomorrow. Yeah, really, dude? I happened to run into this Santa. <laughs> exactly. So he flies back to uh, to his pad, and that's basically the end of the, uh, the opener of the story. We cut to 20 miles north in the open country, I guess this is, or I'm sorry, 30 miles, rather. 30 miles north. I, I, so this is upstate New York, I'm supposing. And it's this dilapidated barn. We catch up with this guy, and his name is uh, Gabriel Airwalker. And essentially, he's been left. Nobody knows he's here. He's left in this abandoned, this was the lair of the robot maker called the Machine Smith. And Gabriel's been, essentially, he's been mending himself. He had had this battle with the Silver Surfer and he'd been smashed to pieces because as it turns out Gabriel is actually an automaton he's, he's a mechanical man who didn't realize that he was a mechanical man he thought that he was actually a real human being or you know a real organic being and that someone had done this to him so I thought that was kind of interesting but anyway he's he's been here long enough he's totally healed up everything's cool now and it's time for him to leave so he ignites his cosmic cloak which I thought was actually really cool it basically looks like a pair of fiery wings coming off his back but it's a it's a cosmic cloak and he's ready to leave and the light of his cosmic cloak actually wakes up this young kid who lives in the farmhouse adjacent to this abandoned barn and he comes out and this, I, I love the little character moment here, the little interaction between the two of them, because the little kid comes out. And it's kind of like an E.T. moment, but you have to remember, e, this is way before E.T. And he comes out, and the kid just says to him, he says, uh, you're an alien, aren't you, mister? He says, what planet are you from? Where's your starship? And uh, Gabriel just says, well, I'm Gabriel Airwalker. So the kid says, do you know Luke Skywalker? I thought that was <laughs> awesome. I really like that. And he makes a little reference to Darth Vader a little bit later in the story. So... You got you get a total ET style vibe here, and the kid essentially makes friends with Gabriel, and so Gabriel takes him with him, and they end up flying, basically air walking, and this was the other thing is you would think that this would scare the bejesus out of a child, because there's a, a great panel on page nine where Gabriel is literally holding his hand. They look like they're strolling down a city street, ca you know, casual as can be, but they're actually in the air. You can see a jetliner going by behind them. So they've got to be like thousands of feet in the air, but the kids, you know, it doesn't phase him at all. 
Um, I kind of skipped over. There's another little interlude here that uh, maybe you can shed some light on this, Paul. This kind of threw me for a loop because this is at a time when Thor still had to, to share his time with, with Don Blake. He had to become Don Blake and he had a, the whole civilian identity. Something has happened here to where Don Blake is no longer, he no longer has his own practice. He's actually being welcomed into this new practice and it's essentially he's working in kind of a I don't want to mischaracterize it but it almost looked like a like a slum slash like like a clinic I think like a free clinic like in the ghetto or something so yeah. his very first patient is this junkie and somebody actually remarks in the board meeting you know their, their internal monologue to themselves is I hear that Blake was once a high-priced surgeon wonder what happened to bring him down like this and I thought the exact same thing whoa what the hell happened here I, so, I don't recall. I was reading the book at this time. I was actively reading it on a regular basis, but I don't recall what was going on in the backstory at this point. Uh, like you, while I, I don't have the total disdain for the character of Don Blake, he really was never a big deal for me. I almost right. couldn't understand if you were Thor why you would ever go back to being Don Blake. Exactly. You know. You know yeah. what? I'm I'm not going to tap my hammer on the floor because I'd rather stay Thor. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, I was listening. What the? Who was it? I was listening to just uh, in the past couple of days. I was listening to a show where somebody was talking about, you know, the worst thing that uh, the JMS ever did was bringing back Don oh, Blank. That was and on could, uh, Comics Monthly Monday. That was what you. That's right. Comics. Yeah, I could not agree more on that. Yeah, I. As much as I enjoyed most of that run, I thought that was a major misstep that he made in that story was bringing back Don Blake because I never really felt like Blake served much of a purpose beyond giving Thor the the you know the one minute thing with the hammer, which became such a crutch for that character. So I was actually really very happy when uh, when Simonson did away with Don Blake. I always thought that was one of the great hallmarks of Simonson's run was that he just, you know, he wiped that out. He just took it out and made Thor awesome as Thor, full-time Thor. I thought that yeah. was really cool. Well, like I said, the character never really bothered me. I just never understood his utility. Right. You know, the... well, this this intrigued me because up until this, I don't, I can't recall a time when I ever gave a shit about Don Blake. This made me care just in the aspect of I'd like to know how did he get here because you know like this woman says I wonder what happened to bring him down like this I'd like to know that too. just you know it's not going to keep me up nights but I thought <laughs> well this is an interesting development that something has happened to this character where he no longer has his own practice and now he's working in this you know this grungy clinic so what happened I, I just I'm curious about that but not enough to go back and you know dig through dozens of issues to try to find out either because ultimately i will confess don't really give a rat's ass about don blake well not for the don blake story in fact i think there's precious little of don blake in it if i remember right but there was a very good run leading up to issue 300 uh starting at about the high 280s there's about a mm -hmm. 12 12 or 13 issue run there which i think was Roy Thomas writing, but I'm not 100% sure about that either. Uh, you know, basically, you know, yet again, Ragnar Ragnarok coming and all of that stuff. But it was, it was, I, I remember reading it at the time and it was pretty exciting and compelling stuff. So you may want to, you may want to give that a visit. Is that, I'm trying to remember when, when is Simonson's first run? 
Because is, isn't that right in that wheelhouse or right I think in that general? Lift, I think it's a little after this. I think it was like around 320-something. Well, the the one with like Beta Ray Bill and all that is like 333, I think. Okay. But he had a prior run where I don't think he was the writer. He was just oh. the artist, I believe. But it, it was earlier. And I want to say it's around the area that you're talking about because I think Thomas was the writer. I, I don't know. I'd have to look it up to be sure, but... That's what I I'm thinking anyway. Don't think that, he drew those particular issues. Uh, I'm just uh, I'm punching it up on Wikipedia while we're speaking because you know anything you read there is true. <laughs> uh, while you do that, I'll continue my synopsis. I didn't mean to uh, to distract myself. So essentially, Gabriel walks to New York, taking Kevin, little boy, with him. They actually go to the headquarters of the Fantastic Four. And the entire reason that they're going there is that. Gabriel, for some reason, he's got a mat on. He wants a rematch with the Silver Surfer. I, I don't know if this is a grudge match thing about them both being heralds of Galactus, like Gabriel's trying to prove something or what. I, I really didn't. Catch I can give that you a little of that of background story. after okay. you finish your synopsis. All right. So essentially, in order to coerce the Fantastic Four to do their thing to draw the Silver Surfer to Earth, Gabriel uses his powers to whip up. Well, actually, there was a blizzard already going on. He makes he uses his powers to make it that much worse. So it becomes like a hurricane force blizzard in New York that's literally like ripping things up and toppling buildings, and it's really bad news. So as Don Blake is leaving work at the clinic, he goes outside and is like, man, this is a bad storm. So he turns into Thor, because, of course, Thor's master of the storm, uses his powers to stop the storm, and, of course, that draws the attention of... Gabriel and the two have a pretty epic tussle, which I really liked because Thor just confronts him like, Hey, are you the one responsible for this? And Gabriel just lights right into him thinking that Thor is just basically, he's a human superhero with delusions of grandeur, not believing he really is a God. And so it just, it develops, it just gets worse and worse develops into this big tussle between the two of them, which is actually pretty exciting because at one point, uh, while they're struggling, Thor gets uh, covered up. His face gets covered up by Gabriel's uh, cosmic cloak, and he actually suffocates. He actually passes out for lack of oxygen, which I thought was kind of weird because I didn't think Thor needed to breathe, but I guess he does. Also, Gabriel somehow, and it's never really adequately explained, I didn't feel in this story, he is able to wield Mjolnir. And so... Just like the cover, I really like this, on page 21, fourth panel, it is an exact duplicate of the image that's on the cover of the book, which rarely happens in comics. But it's this very same shot. He's holding Thor with one hand. He's un Thor's unconscious. He's holding him by his cape. He's got Mjolnir in the other hand. He's ready to just bath Thor's brains in when he hears kevin down on the ground basically saying you know <laughs> he's doing the whole you can be great again superman you know type of thing trying to talk gabriel out of smashing thor's face in and the kid's words actually have an effect on gabriel where he decides all right if you don't want me to kill him i won't kill him and he lets him go he drops thor on the ground thor recovers throws Mjolnir with all his might and drives it straight through Gabriel, who, remember, is just a mechanical man, smashes a hole in him, Gabriel falls to the ground, and he's dead. And, of course, Kevin has his E.T. moment, runs over, and he's like, he's dead. You killed him. And he he's pissed off. He even I hate says, you, Thor. 
yeah, now he's dead and you killed him. I hate you, Thor. Get away from me. And the very last panel of the book is, you know, Kevin's stand. You know, he's, he's down on his knees. He's weeping over Gabriel's dead body. And Thor's doing like the lonely man walk away. And that's the end of the story. And I'm thinking, wait a minute, Thor. This poor kid got abducted from, you know, wherever that, where was it? 30 miles upstate. Now he's dumped alone in the middle of the city. You're really not going to just walk away and leave this kid there, are you? I hope not. But that's how the story ended. I got to tell you, dude, I loved this issue from top to bottom. I thought this was a hell of a fun ride. This is classic comics just the way I love them. And especially classic Marvel because... It's all over the place with the notes. You get a great backstory of Gabriel, his tussle with the with the Silver Surfer. You get footnotes. Apparently, this happened in Captain America 249. Well, that was the Machine Smith story. Oh, okay. So the tussle with Silver Surfer happened somewhere that else. That was in Fantastic Four. That's, that's ah, I gotcha. Okay. That's what I'm saying. In, in Fantastic Four, I think it was 121. Uh, Gabriel comes. And he's predicting the end of the world. And people start to panic and the FF face off against him. And he, he if my memory is correct, I'm, I'm doing all this off to my memory. So I could be inaccurate on some details. But I think he actually defeats the FF. And the surfer who is hanging, basically hanging out just beyond the atmosphere. Because he's still earthbound at that point. Yeah, I was just going to say, he was trapped on Earth, right? Yeah. As punishment. But, but kind of for his longing for outer space, he would kind of go to basically just where the barrier began. And he'd be hanging out up there. Uh, and he becomes aware of the fight for whatever reason. And he comes over and he defeats Gabriel, which ultimately ends up uh, revealing that he's a robot. Later on... They uh, they did a story where they gave his origin, and if my memory is accurate, and boy, this this is taxing my memory a little bit, but uh, uh, the other the other Harold uh, uh, Galactus Fire Lord, Fire Lord, yeah, they he, were they were he, buddies. Yeah, he and Gabriel served together, I think, in in the Nova Corps, Corps, excuse me, uh, or or something to that effect. They were like something sources like of, that, yeah. Galador or not Galador, that's Rom. But but something along those lines. They they served together and they were good friends. And they both ended up becoming uh, heralds of Galactus. Right. And, and the actual Gabriel gets killed. And if my memory is right, Galactus actually had a certain affection for him, and that's why he created the robot as his uh, as his herald for a sh- for a time. Hmm. See if I'm but not that's, mistaken, because he was first introduced as a robot. Let me see. I'm looking. I already had this pulled up on Mike's Amazing World. Let me flip ahead because if I'm not mistaken, yeah. See, very next issue, 306, has uh, Thor fighting Fire Lord. So Fire Lord shows up after this, probably specifically because he's pissed that Thor killed Gabriel. And that, the, that the, may be actually where the story that I'm talking about about uh, came from with the two right. friends and everything. Well, obviously, something happens where Gabriel gets better because he, you know, as I said, I first met him and first learned about him in Annihilation. So, you know, something happens. He's not really dead, although for all intents and purposes, it looks like he is clearly dead in here because Thor put Mjolnir straight through the middle of his body. I'm also speculating that that's why he was able to handle Mjolnir because he wasn't truly alive. Yeah, that's, that's kind of the... That's kind of the half-ass explanation that's given here because Thor, um, where is it here? 
He's saying to himself, this is just before he throws the, the fatal blow. He's, he's thinking to himself, he says, "'Twas Gabriel, striking me with my mallet. What manner of living being is he to wield me honor unless he is not alive, but mimics sentience in some sinister way? So it's kind of a stretch, but it turns out it's, you know, that's, I guess that must be the reason that because he's not alive, he can wield it. But again, I think somebody's playing a little fast and loose because does that mean that any mechanical being in the Marvel universe can wield me all like machine man could wield me all I Herbie I the don't... robot. Oh, that would be awesome. Herbie with just, the power. Just of grab the hammer and start beating the crap out of Thor with. <laughs> See, I would think that the enchantment goes, you know, across the board. So I'm thinking that they just, they were looking for a convenient out in this particular because it is i mean it is exciting that somebody else can take thor's hammer away from him and cloud him with it that's pretty cool but well they did I, that I just, in the uh in the red hulk series that they did with uh what's his name uh jeff Loeb. jeff Loeb did it where where the red hulk fights thor and basically they go up beyond the atmosphere at some point and he takes the hammer from thor and starts beating him with it and the explanation is that there's no gravity there therefore he can handle the hammer which is really playing fast and loose with the enchantment as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, yeah, I don't know how I feel about that. Oh, I feel it's bad. I, and I liked that run. I thought that was a fun run. It was gen, you know, just genuinely enjoyable. No, you know, no great shakes, but just fun to read books. Right. And right. I, but I still didn't like that particular aspect of it. I, I I did not care for him being able to handle the hammer. They they could have come up with other ways to do it. Cuz to me not being able to wield the hammer is more than just you can't pick it up. You can't wield it means you can't wield it. Like like you're not able to hold it or you're not able to swing it. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Exactly. I think the enchantment should be more broad-based than just you can't lift it, but, oh, if you're already in space, then, okay, then, yeah, then you can wield it. No, that's not how it's supposed to work, right? And so the I don't same know thing what, with Gabriel. Yeah, so I, I, I don't know what form you know, not being able to wield it in space would take exactly, but maybe it, it should, it should just pull itself from your hand or something. Yeah. Or, 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 you, or know, you go you, to throw it and it's immovable or something. Exactly. You know, something. Exactly. Yeah. You, 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 that's exactly what I was thinking. You go to, you know, bath Thor with it and you, you can't, it's just an immovable object at that point. Yeah. That That's, that's how I would think of it anyway, but that's a nitpick. Um, is, you know, ultimately it is, but it's, it's, you know, you write any stories, I think you should be considering these nitpicks. Absolutely. This this really, um, I think it's fair to say, it actually shocked me in how much I really liked this because I don't recall liking Thor from this era at all because I didn't become a Thor fan until the Simonson stuff, specifically because I can remember issues like this that I picked up and I just thought, I thought Thor was seriously lame. You know, I thought he was a bit of a girly man with the long hair and the goofy way he talked and all that. So as a kid, I, I wouldn't have dug this. But reading it now with, with some hindsight and, and knowing more about all of the characters involved in the story, man, I really dug it. I, I really thought it was good stuff. And like I say, this is like classic Marvel to me because, you know, they only appear for just a couple of panels. But I used to love it when you would read any Marvel book and there was an opportunity that, you know, maybe some other character would, would have a little cameo or a little crossover or whatever, really lending into that sense of it was a huge shared 
universe and continuity where everybody just kind of lived there and bumped into each other with, you know, fair regularity. And so the fact that you get this little interaction with the FF and, you know, the references to things that have happened in other books with, you know, the Captain America thing and the machines. I, I love that. I really enjoyed that aspect of the story. And I even really enjoyed the art. I've never really been much on uh, on Keith Pollard, but uh, here I, I don't know. Maybe a lot of it's due to, to Chick, uh, Chick Stone's inks. I'm really not sure, but I really enjoyed this art. And it makes me want to read more of, uh, of this era of Thor because I really enjoyed it a lot. And I, I've long been thinking that I am so far overdue to really get properly up to speed on more of the of the classic hello hello oh that's a problem okay and and we're back whoa that was like no time went by at all yeah didn't it feel fast wow that was whew, my head spinning <laughs> so uh before we get into into our current books do you have any anything to throw in any comic news anything um no, nah, I'll, I'll save it for another episode. But I, I liked your idea for this one, calling this one The Leftovers, because I, I think it's important to explain to the folks that basically everything they're hearing in this episode is kind of uh, leftovers from other episodes, because, you know, they, they just heard that uh, portion of that uh, quote-unquote lost episode. Then the book you're going to review is a book uh, that comes from a lost recording that you did recently. And then the book that I have is one that I prepped for the last time we recorded, but we ran out of time, so I didn't get to it. So, Yeah, the, the two books we're doing now, we are doing uh, quote-unquote live for you, but they are books that we had planned for prior episodes. And mine, we had actually, much like the book I had done with Scott before, we had actually uh, done a recording, but it never uh, came out and is lost to the whims of the internet. <laughs> lost in the ether unfortunately i'll throw just my one little bit of comic news i want to send a thank you out there to our our good friend andy leyland who uh sent me a uh, british reprint of uh it's it's a marvel now book it, it, it actually in, encompasses in one book the first issues of the marvel now uh thor iron man and captain america series and it's pretty cool and i was that's pretty excited cool. to get it. Uh, I think the timing is a little off because I think it was intended to be a Christmas gift. So it's a little early, but when you're listening to this episode, it'll seem like it's right on schedule. Well, I'll tell you what. I will, uh, if you don't mind, I'll piggyback on that. Thank you to Andy. Um, I was going to save this for uh, for a Two True Freak show, uh, specifically growing up Star Wars. But uh, literally just yesterday, when I got home from work. There was a package waiting for me, uh, which uh, sent by the Royal Mail. So I always know who it's who it's from when it's uh, when it says the Royal Mail. It's, it means I damn I just missed the Queen again. <laughs> but uh, it was uh, another big old stack of Star Wars weeklies. Uh, Andy has been nabbing these as he can, finds them on the cheap and uh, sending them across the ocean to me. And man, I really appreciate it because uh, this second stack he just sent me is mine, all mine. Because what I've been doing is. Um, uh, most of the collection I have of Star Wars weekly comics are hand-me-downs from Scott Rifen because he, um, ba uh, this is my understanding. I could be wrong, and hopefully he'll correct me if I'm wrong. But my understanding is that based on our talking it up, uh, Chris and I on Star Wars Monthly Monday a while back about these British, uh, you know, the weekly reprints of the Marvel comic stuff, uh, Marvel Star Wars stuff, Scott started collecting them. 
And as he's buying lots and, you know, adding to his collection, as he's been getting doubles, he's been passing them off to me. So the first big batch that Andy sent me recently, it was a book or it was a stack of about, oh, I don't know, 12, 15 issues, something like that. The vast majority of them um, were going to Scott because they were mostly issues that he didn't already have. So what I did was I decided, all right, let's be fair. I'll give him the issues that he doesn't have and I'll keep any doubles. And it worked out to about three quarters of the book went to Scott, which is that's fine. I wanted to do it that way. It's fair. But at the same rate, it was like, oh, damn, you know. This second stack that came in, he's he already has everything that's in that stack, so it's mine, all mine. <laughs> but uh, really, I mean, I, I'm addicted to these. I really do want to try to uh, to build a complete collection. It'll probably take me forever and it cost me a fortune, but uh, I really do want to want to get them all eventually because they're really cool. They're just different enough from the American versions, even though it's mostly the same material that uh, the. Uh, obsessive in me just wants to have them all you know but it's cool to have them in that format though it is well i love the you know these are these are oversized they're more magazine size as opposed to comic book size and uh you know it's funny chris chris honeywell and i were just talking about this but the older i get the more i really appreciate black and white in comics when it's done properly and there's something about these comics that I have loved so much all my life, seeing them in a, in a slightly bigger format, but in glorious black and white, that just really works for me. I've, I've really fallen in love with this format and I really like it. Plus there's uh, there's just enough like DVD extras, so to speak in there, because a lot of them have like uh, special uh, pinups or covers or just alternate uh, takes on some of the scenes and the artwork Mm. That again, it's just enough to keep enticing me. So, you know, it, it, there's not a lot of new stuff, but there's just enough that it's like, damn, now I need to own this, you know? So, yeah, I'm kind of hooked on them at this point. Yeah. Plus, uh, two of them in the last batch that he sent me, um, two of them were the Planet of the Apes weeklies, which is, again, the reprints of the uh, the American Marvel stuff, but in, you know, in that same format. And man, now I want to own those too, but. Whew, between the two of those, it'll it'll take me a while, but those are really nice. If you like the you know the uh, Planet of the Apes magazine that Marvel put out back in the day, that's that's what this stuff is reprinting, and it's really nice. Mm. Well, that that is cool. So once again, I'm jealous. <laughs> it's like a perpetual state of affairs, but <laughs> such is life. But I I remember like as a kid when when I'd go to the store and they had like the British. Uh, publications of you know the books that had already been done in america you know spider-man hulk whatever and they'd be combined but they'd be broken down and everything but they mm-hmm. they used to sell them for a song right and i had a stack of them and i have no idea what became of them and it kind was of pisses like, me off was that like mighty world of marvel or something like that is that the one you're talking about i don't even recall i don't think so i think it was just the regular times it would be like spider-man and the hulk or something like oh that. okay you know? i got you but it, it's but I, I I don't know when I uh, divested myself of them, but it pisses me off that I did it all. Because <laughs> for the longest time, the only uh, the only uh, British comic I had was uh, I had a, I think it was called the I want to say it was the Mighty World of Marvel. I think was the name of it, and it re, the one that I had. Um, I think there was probably more than one story in there, but the story that I know for sure that it reprinted was Vision and the Scarlet Witch number four, where Magneto reveals himself to be the father of 
uh, Wanda and, and Pietro, which is a story I already owned and loved anyway. So I just mm-hmm. thought it was cool to have it, you know, in this in this you know foreign format and everything. Yeah, well, that, that's exactly what it was with mine. I think they were all books I had already, and they were black and white, and yeah, but it was still just cool to have them. All right. Anyway, uh, you ready to jump into our two remaining books? Absolutely. Okay, so as as I think we've said already, uh, I have Amazing Spider-Man number 200, which is from January of 1980. It's a double-sized book with a cover price of 75 cents. And it was only 75 cents because it was a double-sized book. <laughs> the cover is by John Romita Sr. and shows an image of Spider-Man in the center with a secondary image of Spider-Man confronting the burglar. The main image is colored, but the secondary image is just done with blue and gray tones, and it's a pretty cool-looking cover, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, the story is by Marv Wolfman, Keith Pollard, Jim Mooney, John Costanza, Glynis Ween, and Jim Shooter. And if I recall correctly from when I synopsized this book a while ago, that's the way the credits are given. They don't spe- specify who did what. Uh, and there's, it's indicated that Stan Lee did one page of the dialogue in the book, just for old time's sake. They don't tell you which page. They, they leave it up to you to decide for yourself. The story is titled The Spider and the Burglar, a sequel. And we join the story in progress. Spider-Man has been injected by Mysterio with a chemical depressant, which caused him to lose his powers. At this point, he's in a senior home where he's previously been told that Aunt May has had a heart attack and died. But the doctor turned out to be Mysterio. And so Peter walks in the world of self-pity, blaming Aunt May's and Uncle Ben's deaths on Spider-Man. Meanwhile, the burglar, who was terrorizing the nursing home and was tied up by Mysterio, has freed himself and starts to make his way to the Parker home. As this is going on, Peter is looking for him because he had rented and trashed his home. Next, we have an obligatory flashback to Spider-Man's origin. And in a quick turnaround, Peter declares that he is going to hunt down Uncle Ben's killer who has re- who has returned and Spider-Man is going to stop him. And just as a side note, my guess is that uh, the origin page is the one that Stan Lee scripted. I would so, guess, yeah. That brings us to Chapter 2, Less Spider Than Man. Peter is researching and investigating the mystery as he tries to cross between, cross between two buildings on a web line but isn't able to keep his balance due to the apparent loss of his powers. He's able to slowly make his way across. He makes his way to a TV station and liberates a video. In an all too convenient moment, he hears a commotion stops a, and stops a purse snatcher, helping the very security guard who he had ignored in his origin. So, Peter returns home only to find the burglar inside with a gun pointed right at him. And that brings us to chapter three, Let the Burglar Beware. Peter immediately throws himself at the burglar, and the two of them wrestle until Peter takes a gun butt to the temple and is knocked out and tied up on a chair. And it just happens to be in the same warehouse where Spider-Man originally had uh, caught the burglar. Hmm. Peter learns that the burglar is looking for a treasure buried in the Parker's home, which is Dutch Malone's hidden treasure. Malone had lived in the house during Prohibition and was arrested by Elliot Ness on a tax violation, much like Al Capone. <laughs> yes, I'm not making any of this up. The burglar exposits... Didn't this- Elliot Ness operate out of Chicago, though? Uh, what? <laughs> you, you're going gonna to hit me on technicalities now? Um, I'm, it's okay. I'm just, <laughs> I can roll with it. 
Maybe it was That's Elliot Ness's cousin. Ask Sean Connery. He'll tell you they were in Chicago. <laughs> it should have been like Elliot Ness's cousin Bill or something like that, you know? Or, uh... I'm just, I'm just trying to think of a, of a clever pun, like his cousin Late. Late Ness. <laughs> yeah, I, I can't... I, I'm sure there's some really funny ones, but it's just... Lock. Yeah, Lock Ness. <laughs> uh, anyway. He was a monster. <laughs> The burglar exposits all this information as Peter struggles to free himself. Then uh, the burglar bitch slaps the tied up Peter. Peter refuses to cooperate and a light bulb goes on over the burglar's head and he heads off. Once he's gone, Peter breaks free of his bond saying that nothing is going to get in his way. Which now brings us to chapter 4, Murder Most Foul. Back in his Spider-Man costume, Peter follows the burglar, still believing his powers to be gone. He struggles to hitch a ride on the outside of a bus. After another quick flashback, he follows the burglar back to the nursing home, following about, oh, three feet behind the burglar, but still unseen, until he calls out, and the burglar tries to shoot him, but somehow misses. He runs into the nursing home and is able to hit him in the side with a bullet, causing Spider-Man to collapse. The burglar leaves, thinking he's killed Spider-Man, but Spider-Man then struggles to his feet. Which brings us to Chapter 5, The Final Confrontation. The burglar bursts into the warehouse where he left Peter tied up with Aunt May in tow. They, and it turns out Aunt May is very much alive. They oh, damn it! <laughs> I knew you'd love that. They, they see that Peter isn't there and we get a, another flashback to Uncle Ben's death. The burglar exposits about how they faked May's death and Spider-Man announces his presence jumps down from the rafters, landing a drop kick on the burglar. The two of them wrestle, and Spider-Man assures May that he's there to help. Spider-Man avoids some shots and gets in some clean punches before the burglar feigns a heart attack, and then gets in some shots of his own before Peter takes him out, and reveals his identity. The two battle some more, and the burglar starts to get paranoid that he can't get away. Spider-Man makes a speech, uh, something about great power and responsibility, I, I don't know. <laughs> and how he's not going to kill the burglar, but the burglar can't accept this and actually has a fatal heart attack due to his panic. Spider-Man takes Aunt May to the hospital to recover. While there, she tells Peter that they had a that they had found a large box in the house, but that its contents were eaten by silverfish. The we then have a quick epilogue called Resolutions, where we see Spider-Man swinging with full powers, giving another speech to himself, renewing his commitment to justice, and that's where our story ends. Now, I'm of two minds on this one. Uh, setting the artwork aside, because that's a totally different critique for me. From a story point of view, as a self-contained story, I have no problem with the way this story is presented, the way it pl plays out, even though there's a couple of silly moments in it. And when I read it as a new story, I found it very entertaining, and it was all good as far as that goes. On the other hand... I hate stories that make the world too small and explain things that don't need to be explained. Yep, yeah. And this story is definitely a victim of that. Everything is coincidentally happening. You'd think there's only eight people who live in New York City. Um, it's just, it, it, it just doesn't, it doesn't need to be told. So I'm not sure where I ultimately fall on it. I think being the sentimental fool I am, I go more towards the former, that it's still okay with me that they did it. But again... You really never needed to explain why the burglar was burglarizing the house. Uh, you never needed to do this whole Al Capone thing. Uh, I, I don't, there's, there's just too much, 
too many coincidences is the problem. But I'm uh, willing the, to overlook them and say that I like the story anyway. Now, I, I see where you're going with that, except here's the thing is, you know, uh, I'll, I'll use John Burns chapter one as, a, as an example. Now, I'm not the hater on that that I've heard a lot of other people be, but I will agree with the criticisms that I hear uh, about the story in regards to Byrne wanted to fix things that weren't, you know, that seemed to really only be a problem to him when he would read the books. And, you know, if you're going to level that criticism against him, it seems only fair to level the same criticism here that did we ever need an explanation of, of why the burglar was at the the Parker household because I'll be honest with you I've read the the origin story of Spider-Man a million times never occurred to me to think why would he go you know to the park it was just part of the story you know it was just that was the natural progression it was there was an ironic portion to the story being told that because Spider-Man didn't stop the burglar when he had an opportunity earlier in the day then he paid for it you know with, with you know his uncle's murder but yeah. here's the difference there and where I'm going to lean more toward the, yeah, I, I like the story as opposed to I don't like the story. Because in this instance, it's not so much like what Byrne was doing, going back and telling the origin and giving you a reason. This is bringing the villain back. And in that process of vil- bringing him back, you know, a, a character who I don't think we ever even get a name for in the original story and everything. And, and really nothing more than he was just he was the burglar. You got to give more of him. You know, if you're going to bring him back and you're, you're going to make it a second go round between him and Spider-Man, you, you got to put some flesh on the bones of that character. And so it's not the greatest origin story, you know, but I, I think that Wolfman was almost obliged to try to explain why did he kill Ben in the first place? What was he doing in that home? So I, I think... I think it's much more forgivable in this instance because it almost has to be done. Whereas in a case like Burns, it was more of, you know, doing whatever he was doing there that, that, you know, didn't necessarily have to be explained. You know what I mean? I think there's a difference. I'm thinking that we're both saying the same thing. We just said it slightly different ways, but we're both saying, we're both seeing the the shortfalls of shrinking the world and all of that, but saying, yeah, but it's an okay story, and we're okay with it. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's funny, in 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 trying to take away the co- coincidental aspect of the fact that he was at the Parker's house by giving a reason for him to be there and everything, he, he then adds in so many layers of coincidence into the story. It's the same warehouse. Uh, he, he, he helps the same security guard from his origin story. Right, I mean, yeah. It, it, it just it gets a little bit of that... Uh, you know, it, it gets a little bit of the feeling of the of the uh, like the Star Trek novels where they try and work in all all the villains from the original series into one. Right. Book. Right. Yeah. You know, it, it's it's a little too much of that. But but like I said, on a whole, I'm willing to overlook all of that because, uh, you know, bottom line is I can look at it from a real literary point of view and, and give you all sorts of critiques as to why I think the story might fail from a writing point of view. But when it comes down to comic books, the bottom line for me is, do I enjoy reading them? Do I get pleasure reading them? And are they fun? And and I really enjoyed this one. I enjoyed it when I was a kid, and I still enjoy it. So that's that's my biggest reason for overlooking the shortcomings. It's not that they're not there, mm-hmm. but it's just a fun story. And, and it, it's it's got some satisfying aspects to it, despite the fact that they brought Aunt May back to life. That's unforgivable. 
<laughs> now, from an art point of view, uh, I really like the art in this issue. I mean, I like Keith Pollard to begin with. Right, yeah. But if you look at this one closely, and it was this is something that I came up with as we were doing this the last time. If you look at it closely, he really seems to be trying to, to pay homage to previous Spider-Man artists. Yeah. In the way that he the way he drew this book. Uh, some of the early pages actually remind me a lot of Ross Andrew. Then you have uh, you get to to the origin, and shortly before the origin, of the, it looks like he's trying to do a little bit of John Romita Senior. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a scene where he's fighting the burglar, where where it looks like he's he's doing Gil Kane. So you know, I, I could be mistaken, and maybe he wasn't, and it's just the way he drew this book. But that's the way I'm seeing it. I, I see some Steve Ditko in here. I think yeah. he tried to vary his style throughout the book to pay homage to to all these great Spider-Man artists. No, I, I will agree with you there. The uh, I think the art's fantastic. The only criticism I would have of the art is that I think that um, Jim Mooney has a bit of a heavy hand in the inking here because as dynamic as it is and as good as it looks, it looks an awful lot like the same uh, art when Mooney was inking over Al Milgram. And... You know, normally I, I'm I'm a fan of when a when an inker gives a unified look to the art, but there's a vast difference between Al Milgram and Keith Pollard. Oh yeah. So him, I don't want to say dumbing down the art, but kind of homogenizing the art a little bit and not really bringing out the true dynamism of uh, Pollard's uh, art is kind of a shame because Pollard, I'd almost forgotten what a hell of an artist he is because by sheer, you know, coincidence. I'm actually making my way right now through Marv Wolfman's run on Fantastic Four, and Pollard mm-hmm. uh, did a lot of that. Is is that and, the, is that the part where they they age them, and then the Sphinx comes along and Galactus fights the Sphinx for them? I'm, yeah, I think so, but I'm not there yet. I just passed uh, I just passed issue 200 of that, and that was where uh, the FF had broken up. And then they'd all kind of gone their separate ways and Reed fights Dr. Doom. Yep, Mm -hmm. exactly. That was it. And the art in that is absolutely fantastic. And like I said, I just, uh, Keith Pollard is just one of those guys that had kind of fallen off my radar because he, he up and quit comics in around 94 or so. And so I just hadn't really thought about him in a long time, but digging back into these comics again, right when he was at, you know, the height of his powers and, and popularity and everything, I, I kind of rediscovered him. I'm like, damn, this guy was a hell of an artist. Why did he quit? You know? Um, so looking at this, I, I can definitely see, you know, that the layout style is very much his, but it's not quite as dynamic as his FF stuff. And I have to guess that that's because of Jim Mooney. Now, I like Jim Mooney. But it's funny to me to see his work on Spider-Man because to my dying day, I'm always going to think of Jim Mooney as the artist on those usually pretty crappy Supergirl backup features like in Adventure Comics and stuff like that. You know, to Mm -hmm. me, he's a Supergirl artist. So there's a very big difference between like Silver Age Supergirl and Bronze Age Spider-Man. You know, there's there's a, a, a big you know, there's a much bigger need for for you know big bombastic you know dynamic action and stuff as opposed to you know what were often silly you know girly stories of Supergirl. You know, I see. I always see Jim Mooney as just kind of workmanlike. You know, he does the job, he gets it done. It's not bad. 
Yeah. But there's never anything special about it either. He just, you know, he, he tells the story. You can follow it. Right. Uh, you know, you can recognize the different characters. You can tell the difference between their facial expressions and whatever. It's all all right. You know, there's, there's, I don't really have any strong criticism of it. But there's nothing, there's never a point where you say, oh, wow, look at that. Right. That's that's the way I see Jim Mooney. Uh, I'm, I'm paging through it like while we're talking. And there's uh, page 30 in the, or, excuse me, 39 in the book. Mm-hmm. To me, that that is a Gil Kane layout, absolutely. Yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 Where he's decking the uh, the burglar. Yeah, and and the, the burglar is flipping over in the air from the punch and heading towards the reader. That's mm-hmm. that's you know yeah you could look up his nose. I mean it's it's, it's <laughs> Gil Kane through and through. So that I like and it's it's pictures like that that make me say I think he was paying homage to the different artists throughout this book. And then I started to look a little bit more closely at some of the pages, and that's when I saw a page that looked like Ross Andrew, and I saw a page that looked like Steve Ditko, and and uh, the page where he's ripping off his shirt uh, to turn into Spider Man. To me, that looks like Sal Buscema. See, what's really funny is I don't know. I couldn't tell you why exactly. Maybe it's the way that Spider Man is colored in this because his outfit is very much like red and purple as opposed to like red and, and black or red and blue. It's it's more purpley. And this really puts me in mind suddenly of a Spider-Man coloring book that I would have had right about this time. And I'm wondering who the artist on that might have been. I, I wonder if Pollard might have done that comic. Either him or Ramita might have done that that coloring book. But I I couldn't tell you what it is. I don't know why it reminds me of that. It just some of the some of the poses and stuff remind mm-hmm. me of uh, of that particular coloring book. I'll have to see if I can look that up at some point. But yeah, I, I like that picture you're talking about where he's ripping his his shirt off and everything. That's really cool. No, I, I liked this. I thought it was really good. I enjoyed the story a lot. You know, despite some of the wonkier elements of it and everything. But uh, I always like these kind of stories. It kind of reminds me, although this story would come much later, it reminds me a lot of. Um, uh, what was the name of that story? Full Circle, I think. That was kind of a, a, a look back at uh, uh, Batman's origin with Joe Chill and all that sort of thing. Oh. I like that story a lot, too. You, you talk about the, the, the first telling of him finding Joe Chill? Because they have revisited that story. No, this was this was a sequel to Batman Year Two. And oh, okay. it was it ended up tied in with Joe like Joe Till's not in it or anything, I don't believe, but it was all kind of somehow tied in with that whole thing. For just you know, those stories that kind of you know do a big circle back to the to the character's origin type of thing. Because mm-hmm. because Spider-Man and Batman have you know somewhat similar origins. Well they're both haunted by the loss of you know him Batman the loss of his parents and Spider-Man the loss of his father figures. I mean, it's pretty right. close. And that's yeah. their motivating factor in, in, in everything they do. The, right. the difference is Spider-Man is so much more lighthearted right. in, in execution, maybe, maybe not in origin. Right. So, yeah, but, but there's definitely similar similarities there. Uh, I'm just going to give my ratings on this thing. I'm giving the cover an A. I am a sucker for John, John Romita Sr. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've very rarely seen John Romita Sr., work that i don't absolutely love and uh this is no exception i love this cover and, and, and i also love the the contrast between the colored figure of spider-man and then the blue and gray tone picture of him confronting the burglar uh really just pops i i, I think it's a great cover so it's an a the interior art while i agree with you that jim mooney probably knocks it down uh the fact that 
that I'm seeing all these other artists in there that have inspired it. And he's able to do that and yet still have a good narrative flow, a good pace, a good storytelling, and have some images in here that really are, are great. Uh, I'm thinking it knocks it down from an A-plus to an A. <laughs> that, that's how good I think the art is inside. I, I, I think it would have been an A-plus if it had been inked even better. Uh, but I'm not, I'm not willing to to knock Pollard too much for, for what, may, what may be among his best work just because it wasn't inked as well as it could be. Right. Uh, so I'm going to give it an A. Uh, Story-wise, I think it's fun. I think it serves uh, it, the, the source material well. I think it, it pays tribute to Spider-Man's origin. Uh, yeah, it's telling some aspects that don't need to be told, uh, but it's pretty solid. I'm going to say B+, and I'm going to give the book an overall A. I think that's fair. Um, the cover, I really like the cover. Um, my issue, my only issues with the cover actually extends into the book itself. So I'm going to make an assumption that the cover is colored by the same person who co- colored the interior. That's really my biggest critique with the entire issue is I don't care for the colors. And this seems to come up a lot with Glennis Ween. I, I just, I, I don't particularly care for her palette choices and her color choices. Now, Granted, this was at a time when comics didn't have the broadest palette available for colors to begin with, but it's almost colored by, like a coloring book. And I think that's maybe why looking at it reminds me of the, the Spider-Man coloring book that I had when I was a kid, because it, it feels like that's how it was colored. So there's absolutely nothing wrong with the cover as far as the art. I think the art's fantastic. I agree with you. Romita is just a hell of an artist for uh, for Spider-Man. I love the bigger figure of Spider-Man, you know, with the, with his fists clenched around the webbing and just mm-hmm. a very dynamic classic pose. I, I like that whole thing. So the cover is really good, but just the coloring of it brings it down a notch. So I'm going to say like, a, I don't know, like a B, B plus, A minus, I guess, right, right in the middle. Um, the art in the interior, I absolutely love it. I'm probably going to go a little bit easier on the art only because I'm so used to Jim Mooney because Mooney was working on Spider-Man when I really got into collecting Spider-Man in the 80s myself. He was uh, inking, I think he was inking Milgram on uh, on Spectacular, I think. I could be wrong on that, but I know he was working on a Spider-Man title as I got into Spider-Man. So I, I have kind of a fondness for his style, even though looking at it these days, I'm not particularly enamored of it. I just I was as a kid, so there's a lot of sentimentality to it. Uh, even looking at you know new material or material I, I haven't seen in a long time, like this. I've read this uh, before, but God, it's it's been I couldn't tell you how many years it's been since I've dug this issue out and looked at it. But I really do like the art. So again, I'd probably go very similar on the art, say uh, 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 B plus A minus. Um, story-wise, now, you know, I'm going off memory here. I didn't have time to do a full reread of this, but I, I remember the story pretty well, just flipping through the, you know, through and looking at the pictures and everything. It was pretty straightforward. Um, I agree with you. There's a lot of silly coincidences and there's some strangeness to it. And I'm still not really crazy about the origin that we're given for why the burglar was in the house. I, I think it was a necessary evil of the story to give a reason i just think the story that the the reason that they end up giving is a little silly it's a little lame but you know all that aside again um i I think it's a really interesting story i think it's an interesting idea that of all the villains to to try to tackle as your big baddie for issue 200 of spider-man to make it the villain that's a pretty cool idea that that's a pretty original idea that i'm sure people didn't see coming 
you know, they were probably expecting, you know, Doc Ock or the Lizard or something like that. But to make it the burglar, the entire reason Spider-Man exists in the first place, that that's pretty cool. And that had to be pretty thrilling and exciting, you know, when this was a brand new issue on the stands, you would think, you know, well before a time when we knew exactly what we were getting, you know, six months in advance or whatever coming down the pike. That had to be pretty cool to walk into a comic or, you know, in, into a store and find that on the comic rack. Oh, that was the story for Spider-Man 200. I, I can only imagine what that would have been like. So, I, you know, I'll give it major points for that. Um, story-wise, uh, again, probably the same. <laughs> I, mean, I think I'm just going to go B plus A minus right across the board because I, I really, you know, I enjoy it on all levels. I think it's a lot of fun. Has a couple of wonky bits, but overall, it's uh, it's a pretty fantastic issue of Spider-Man, I think. It's, it's one of the greats. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I mean... Uh... I, I think uh, maybe I, you know, I'm just sitting here thinking maybe I overstated my criticism because as I graded it, I graded it what I really thought it deserved, and I, you know, I gave it very high grades. So I, I probably overstated my criticism a little bit. Uh, oh, wait a minute, wait a minute. I'm sorry, I forgot. There's uh, page 33 where uh, he drags a very much alive Aunt May out of the shadows. I forgot about. Uh, it's an F. It's an F. Yeah. <laughs> you, know, you know you know what though i i think that's a great image oh actually it is, 32 it is yeah like, uh, no, that is it's a it is a really good image the fear on her face the the shadows to it almost looks like they're bringing norman bates's grand uh, mother out of the uh... <laughs> yeah they have been uh they've been very inconsistent of, of her over the years but this is definitely a call back to like amazing fantasy 15 aunt may because she looks 103 She's got that that you know the like she doesn't have any teeth kind of thing you know yeah, where her, the, the her lips are kind of, yeah drawn over her over her gums and everything yeah she looks she looks ancient not like she was de-aged recently to to look more like she was just you know in well, like her fifties yeah. or sixties or whatever here she looks like she's easily like in her eighties or nineties yeah you know based on her age here she should be his great grandmother right not not his aunt. Right. You know, Peter is supposed to be, when, when he turns into Spider-Man, he's supposed to be 15 years old. Right. And well, by this figure, point, he had to be what, though? I would imagine he was probably in his 20s. But that's what I'm saying. Even, even allowing for him to, to age appropriately. You know, that the fact that he's, at this point, he still wasn't even married to Mary Jane yet. But you figure, right. let's, let's just say for argument's sake, he's been Spider-Man 10 years, which I think is probably more than what they want you to believe at this point. Right. So that would put him at 25. If right. you're 25, what's a reasonable age for your parents to be, assuming they had you at an older age? 60? Oh, let's see. Yeah. That would that would that would be you had you at 35. Right. Okay, just you know, that's probably reasonable. So how much right. older are May and Ben than Peter's parents? You know, what are they? 30 years older than than their siblings. Right. Right. <laughs> right. So, I mean, Aunt May should be in her 60s. Right. Or, or or even if you you know, if you want to make his parents fairly young when they had him, he, she could even be in her fifties. That's right. that's why I, I like in the Amazing Spider Man movie having uh what's his name play uh, Gwen's dad. I can't even think of his name now. Dennis oh, Leary. Uh, Dennis Leary, yeah. Dennis Leary's in his in his mid fifties. He's a, he's about the right age to have a high school slash college student child. Right. You know, he's he's not seventy five the way they draw. They, you know, think about like how they drew Gwen Stacy's father in the comics. He was also, you know, a million years old. Right. <laughs> you know, I, I, I don't I, know yeah, what Captain Stacy. Yeah, he looked like he was easily like in his seventies. Yeah. You know, and 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 keep in mind too, we're talking. 
you know, we're talking about like the 1960s, early 1970s. People weren't having kids in their 40s back then. Right. Generally, you had kids when you were in your 20s. I, I remember, you know, my mom and dad always always talked about how, oh, they were older when they had me because I'm the youngest in my family. And they were they were both 31. <laughs> okay. Yeah. And that's... that was normal. You know, you didn't have kids right. until your late 30s. Right. You know, so 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 Aunt May should not be seventy five years old. <laughs> He's adopted, and and not for nothing, my parents are in their eighties, and they don't look as old as Aunt May does. <laughs> it's just been it's been a hard life, man. It's got a lot of miles on her. It's not the years; it's the mileage. That's, I mean, that that's obviously uh, if if you're not noticing, that's always been a little bit of a pet peeve for me. Is just when they draw the parents so ancient, it just doesn't make sense to me at all. Anyway, I wonder how Spider-Man would have functioned if the if the if the I was going to say the villain, the burglar had killed them both, similar to Batman's origin. You think there'd be too many comparisons to Batman's origin if that had been the case? Yeah, I do. Probably. I think there, there would there would have been claims of it being a ripoff. Now, did you hear just to, to go off on a little bit of a tangent? There were uh, there was a couple at I don't think it was at New York Comic Con, but some major Comic Con, and I saw pictures of it on Facebook. They came. They showed up. They were wearing like dress clothes, but with blood all over them. Right. And whenever they came across somebody dressed up as as Batman, they would drop to the floor in front of him like his parents. <laughs> yeah, I did hear about that. I saw a picture of one of them. The Batman looked mortified too. I think that's hilarious. No, I do too. I think that's pretty clever. Morbid but clever. Yo, very morbid. But <laughs> Batman's origins morbid. I'm sorry. No, it yeah, it is. It is. <laughs> All right. Yeah, you have anything more on this one? No, that was pretty much it. Good, good pick. I like the, I like that book a lot. All right. So now uh, we'll go from the highs of the high to your book. Oh yes. <laughs> All right. We're gonna go to January 1983. This is a Red Circle Comics Group comic. This is All New Adventures of the Mighty Crusaders. That's the actual name for it. Number one, shortened to simply Mighty Crusaders, starting with the next issue. I can't imagine why. (laughs) Cover by Rich Buckler. Uh, There's no cover copy whatsoever. It's just a bunch of heroes charging into gunfire, essentially. Um, It does not specify who any of these people are or anything. It's just it's a it's a really nice rich color, rich buckler jam piece, essentially for the cover. But if you don't know who these people are, well, I'll be honest, this issue's not going to help you much. (laughs) Anyway, the original cover price on this was a buck. And uh, I thought it was really interesting on the inside front cover. We had Red Circle News. It says we're back. And it makes mention of all of these stars that they're bringing in to kind of relaunch these characters because these were existing characters at one time. Uh, But some of the talent they were bringing into this was pretty impressive. Of course, they got Rich Buckler. They got Jim Steranko, Gray Morrow, Alex Toth, John Severin, Alan Weiss, who's one of my favorites, Jim Sherman, and, of course, some other people uh, mentioned in there, too. So they had some big-name talent coming into these books, which is... Kind of the reason to to score them, especially if you can score them on the cheap. But as you're going to find out, scoring these issues, kind of a mixed bag, at least this one anyway. So anyway, the, the title on this one is Atlantis Rising. It's written, drawn, and edited by Rich Buckler. He's credited here as Richard Buckler. Uh, and it's inked by Frank Giacoya. 
It begins in a lonely castle, isolated on a seemingly insignificant mountain in southern New Jersey. Are there mountains in New Jersey? Well, there are mountains. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's the Pocono Mountains and stuff. Uh, okay. I've been to the Poconos. I don't remember ever seeing any castles. <laughs> are there insignificant mountains in southern New Jersey? Well, I don't think there are any truly significant mountains in okay. so so that description is probably fine because I think and and I don't mean that as an insult to New Jersey. I'm just saying I don't think there's any major mountain ranges or anything. But there are, you know, like I said, there's the Pocono Mountains and stuff, and so that there are there are some roads out there that you know you're even driving along, and there's you know huge mountainsides around you. But uh, again, no no major, you know, no no mountains you'd go out of your way to travel there to see. And certainly no castles that I've ever seen. <laughs> Two mafia thugs with a uh, suitcase full of cash are afforded the opportunity to buy into the biggest crime operation ever. The Brain Emperor has a plan to wipe the earth clean of quote-unquote mighty heroes. And I'm thinking they're called mighty heroes because they can't use superheroes. At least that's what I thought. And then later in the issue, they actually call them superheroes. So I'm confused. Uh, all he requires in exchange for his services is total submission to his will. I like this plan. I like this guy. That's that's what I require as well. Total submission to my will. Anyway, seems legit, right? So uh, an orbiting satellite is energized and energy beams bathe the continental home of Earth's most valiant costumed heroes, the Mighty Crusaders. Three weeks later, a quote-unquote mighty hero who looks like a cross between Captain America and Skyman, but with Robin's mask and Superman's hair, busts up a warehouse full of heavy weapons uh, toting thugs. He is the S.H.I.E.L.D., and he demands answers. Where are these weapons coming from? One of the hoods gets the drops on him and uh, blasts him but good with quote-unquote bionic energy, but he is able to shrug it off and lay the creep out. But then the guy disappears in a transporter beam, leaving the S.H.I.E.L.D. confused. Just then, the Fly shows up, as does Fly Girl and the Jaguar. They've been sent by S.H.I.E.L.D.'s friend, General Smith, to investigate the discovery that Earth is being threatened by powerful, malevolent transmissions from outer space. Whoever is behind it is trying to get a planet-wide crime spree going and is also supplying these superweapons. Now... How in the hell they know all this is anybody's guess since uh, much like, you know, who the hell all these people are or why I should give a shit about them. You know, no time at all is spent on explanations of any kind. And I'm not talking just up till now. I mean, this carries on through the entire book. Anyway, the S.H.I.E.L.D. asks, you know, how they're going to find this enemy that they don't even know, you know where he is or anything. And the Fly says, I thought you'd never ask. But then they all or rather, but then all we get of them is uh, we, we see in the next panel or the next page that they're all kind of flitting across the sky together, headed who knows where, and the jaguar just kind of pisses off to take care of something else that's going on at the zoo. If this seems really confusing or like my synopsis isn't very good, understand that this is what's going on in this issue. It doesn't make a hell of a lot of sense. I'm doing the best I can with what I got to work with. So anyway, yeah, you know, Whatever's going on at the Malu at the zoo is more important than stopping malevolent beams from outer space that are causing a continent-wide crime spree. I mean, don't get me wrong, I love animals, but you know, Jesus Christ, priorities, people. Anyway, <laughs> we cut to a scene of a dirtbag holding off the police by threatening to kill a hostage. It's a bank robbery gone bad, but thankfully the web shows up to save the day. 
Elsewhere, another gang of toughs is busted up by a guy who looks like a cross between Commander Steel and NFL Super Pro. This is The Shield, again. No, seriously, this is another guy in the same book named The Shield. Now, I know you're asking yourself, what the... You're you're not the only one, okay? This is exactly what I was saying. It's like, like, say you were picking up an issue of The Avengers for the very first time, and you're introduced to Thor and Iron Man and giant man and then all of a sudden captain america and then another hero and another hero and then suddenly you're introduced to another captain america you'd be like the hell is going on wait how are how are there two captain americas hopefully it's going to be explained right yeah well hold on to that hope okay so anyway this second shield he beats the holy hell out of the bad guys the cops show up and rather than act grateful they give him a lot of shit about excessive force and police procedures and all that crap And in fact, they're actually going to run him in when a mysterious fireball pops up, envelops the shield, and whisks him away to God knows where. But once he's gone, the fuzz make a startling discovery. One of the goons that the shield took out, he took out real good because the guy's dead. In the Nevada desert, the Black Hood, uh, think the Marauder from Team America, has a close encounter of the third kind and is similarly beamed up to places unknown. Elsewhere, Ron Jeremy, dressed as a Mongolian pharaoh, watches the Jaguar on TV and plots to rule the world. At a waterfront warehouse, two more mafia guys are welcomed into the presence of the Brain Emperor and told that they'll get need uh, <laughs> that they'll need super, or excuse me, not super. I was going to say superficial, surgical rather. Super, uh, can't even talk tonight. That they'll need surgical <laughs> brain implants if they want to join the club. And then they're all cool with it. Eventually, we find out Ron Jeremy and the Brain Emperor are working together. Off the coast of Long Island, the Webb is on a boat waiting for his doctor friend to surface from a dive. The doc does and says he's discovered an entire floating metropolis down there. The Webb then gets on the CB to call for help. Meanwhile, the shield, the dark-haired one, is showing the fly and fly girl around his headquarters. Oh, wait a minute. Okay. Weren't they taking him someplace? The fly specifically said, I thought you'd never ask. And doesn't that imply that he's the one that has a plan and that he's... Ah, Jesus Christ. Anyway, the Jaguar, whom I'm seriously tempted to start calling the Jag-Off, shows up just in time for a super summit via trouble alert with a dude that looks a lot like Congo Bill in a gay pride pith helmet. All the heroes are coming together, even if it's uh, via Skype, to battle the nega beams from space, including the other shield. Now, finally, I felt like I'm going to get some answers, right, as to what the hell the deal is with these two guys. But no, I'm I'm not. Because seriously, they, they never throw you a bone here. Why the hell are there two shields in this story? What is their relationship, if there is a relationship, or is it just sheer coincidence that both these guys decided to use that name? And by the way, neither one of them has a shield. You know, <laughs> now maybe it's my bias. Well, that, that's by probably being... a copyright thing. Yeah, if either of them that... showed up with a shield, Marvel probably would have had their asses. But then why call him the shield? Why you know, call him Captain Patriotic or something. But they're both dressed like, you know, you know, red, white, and blue, right? You would expect a patriotic character named the shield to actually have a shield. Now, maybe that's just me. But it seems like a pretty natural conclusion. Anyway, so they're, uh, you know, put in the middle of, uh, uh, you know, putting this plan together when the cable goes out. 
Now the Jagoff, he gets all pissed and, uh, you know, the shield, the dark haired one, uh, you know, completely out of the blue, just starts ripping on his teammates. So the Jagoff, uh, you know, he does what I've been thinking about doing for several pages at this point, and he says, screw you guys, and he just leaves. So he's going to investigate the underwater city that the web called him about earlier. And, but then uh, everybody else says, hey, hey, wait a minute. Uh, they say, we're going to go with you. And I'm thinking, what? You know, isn't there a, you know, this is the umpteenth time in this story. There's a continent wide. It, it, it stresses this point that it's, it's happening across the entire continent, a continent wide crime spree going on that just four panels ago, they were really concerned about teaming up to stop. Now, I just want to make sure that I've got this straight, that just because the cable has gone out and they can't communicate with the other people that they were just talking to, they decided to just abandon that idea, allowing God only knows what horrors to be unleashed across the land to go pursue a completely different Scooby-Doo mystery. I'm so lost at this point, right? Mm -hmm. So anyway, back on the boat with the web and his doctor pal, they're attacked by giant sentinel-like robot things. Now, this is actually pretty cool art-wise. That's the selling point of this whole book anyway, was the art, right? So this part's actually pretty cool. Lots of lots of great fighting stuff by, uh, by Rich Buckler. Lots of flying superheroes battling giant robots kind of stuff. And the Crusaders, uh, the Crusaders as a team arrive just in time to lend a hand and they battle these giant sentinel things. Far below, Ron Jeremy is worried that his carefully laid plans are being endangered by the sudden appearance of the heroes. And so, well ahead of schedule, drives his secret headquarters to the surface where it breaks through the, ra through the waves. At last, he proclaims, Atlantis has risen. Next issue, the Replicant Offensive. No, thank you. Yeah. Um, wow. I don't even know where the hell to begin with this because I, I'm telling you guys, I, you know, I did my best with this synopsis. You probably weren't able to follow it. And I'm not offended if that's the case, because I couldn't follow what the hell was going on in this book. Now, my understanding and this understanding comes strictly from the text page on the inside front cover of the book. My understanding of this is that this is basically getting the old team back together again. So my impression walking away from this is that if you follow these characters, if you were a fan of these characters, you were probably pretty excited about this. But in my estimation, you know, the way I think comics should be, they should be accessible to everybody. If you're relaunching and you're making a big deal about all the talent that you're bringing into your big relaunch, wouldn't you want to win some new fans rather than what I would think would be a pretty small circle of people that even know who the hell the Crusaders are? I was completely friggin' lost in this. There's nothing in here that tells you anything about these people. There's not one reason to give a shit about any of them. And the thing with the two shields drove me nuts. What the hell is the deal with that? Here's the really, really bizarre part is in the back of this, you get and I mean, they're super, super brief. They're not like who's who entries or anything like that, but they're they're these super brief little um, origin stories for the characters. They're they're you know, most of them are, are a page or maybe for some of the other characters, like half a page, like the Jaguar only gets a half a page. The Black Hood only gets half a page. Um, but then both of the shields get a full page. The fly gets a full page. Even those don't help at all. The the two pages for the sh the two different shields tell you nothing 
about the shields as far as their relationship to one another. So far as I could determine in this is that this, this is two completely different, dissimilar people, no relation between them whatsoever, whatsoever, that just totally independent of one another decided to call themselves the shield. That makes no sense at all. It's really, it's so strange. It was just really odd. And I'm so tempted to just go off on a tear and really rip it up. But here's the thing, you know, it's done by Rich Buckler. You know, I'm, I'm a huge Rich Buckler fan, so I don't want to be harsh, but it's like, dude, stick with art because, you know, <laughs> this was not a good story. I'm sorry. It was it was actually pretty bad because it just doesn't make any sense. It moves way too fast. It doesn't introduce you properly to any of the characters, and it doesn't make you care about anything that's happening. It's really, it's just... You know, it's a series of really pretty pictures because the art's fantastic. The art is the only redeeming quality uh, of the book and the only reason I'd ever want to own it. Um, what else did I have on this? Oh, here was a big question. Okay, so the Jaguar, so far as I can determine, is kind of like... He's kind of like Animal Man. He's kind of like a, a cross between, like, say, Animal Man and... Um, Who's that chick at DC that's got the amulet? Vixen. Vixen? Yeah, he's, he's kind of like that. Why the hell does he fly? I don't get that. If you're going to call yourself the Jaguar, I would think that maybe like ran super fast, like a Jaguar, because aren't Jaguars like really fast? Doesn't the... Maybe uh, I'm thinking of cheetahs. I don't know. Yeah, ja no, Jaguars are really fast. Uh, doesn't the origin page have a picture of the belt? And the yeah, belt, it, the belt yeah, has it, a flying horse on it? Yeah, he... Uh, He's got kind of like Wonder Man's jet belt type of thing. But still, that just, I don't know, maybe it's me, but it seems really silly for an, an animal-based character to fly. Unless he's like, uh, uh, you know, like, if he was able to, because I think Animal Man eventually could fly because he could tap into, like, birds and stuff, right? So if he was able to do that, and they actually said that, and he's flying under his own power... But then you'd, you, we wouldn't want to give him like the name of a specific animal then, right? You'd want to call him something similar to Animal Man. <laughs> but calling him the Jaguar, you know, you're, you're, you're linking him to a very specific animal that doesn't fly. So it just, is it just me? Or does that seem really strange? Um, your point is well taken, but I don't know. It just didn't bother me. That'd be like, you know, there being a hero called the Sloth, but he runs really fast. He's very energetic. <laughs> yeah, you know, that makes no sense at all. And that's kind of what I got out of this. He's the Jaguar, yet he flies. What? I, I just thought it was really kind of stupid. Um, oh, here was another thing I noticed on these, just kind of looking through uh, the series. Now, the series itself only lasted 13 issues. But I noticed that uh, the first five issues of this series were a buck a piece at a time when other comics were, I think, 50 or 60 cents. I'm thinking 50 cents, but I'm not. Yeah, I didn't check. I didn't cross reference anything. I, I did. And now I forgot because I, I, I made a note of what these issues cost. And I failed to make a note of what the other ones I did check. And now I forget. I, I want to say 60 cents, but it was, it was right around 50, 60 cents, something like that. 1983. So that's that's a lot. That's I, I, it's pretty expensive, and uh, it's not surprise. It's actually kind of surprise. I was going to say it's not surprising. It only lasted thirteen issues. It's actually surprising it lasted thirteen. Yeah, because uh, I mean, I would like to read more of the series just 
because, you know, again, I'm very enamored of Rich Buckler. I adore the guy's art. I think he's a hell of an artist. I think he's a, a vastly underrated artist. I have more issues from later in this series. So I'm curious to check them out. But uh, I'm, you know, I'm only going to give it if I do eventually get around to it, it's not a, a high on my priority list, but I'm not going to give it, you know, a lot of issues. To I'm going to give it like one or two more reads. But this uh, this was bad. And it wasn't bad in that like, oh, this really sucked kind of way. It, it was bad in that like, this didn't make any goddamn sense kind of way. You know what I mean? Yes, I know exactly what you mean. I read it. <laughs> I, I was going to I was just going to ask you if you read it, because yeah, what, what did you think of it? Uh, you know, I remember I remember back when uh, John Byrne started to uh, write the FF, mm-hmm. and my first thought was, he's an artist. He's not a writer. Right. He's, he's not going to be able to pull this off, you know. And he pulled it off dramatic, you know, dramatically well. He did one of the best runs of the, the FF ever. Right. And then I remember, you know, not I didn't have the same thoughts about when Walt Simonson took over Thor. But I remember thinking afterwards, well, you know, that he he knocked it out of the park. And I started to think, well, these guys are storytellers. They know how to tell a story. And that's why they can put, you know, they they can call on the same talents that make them such good artists and and become writers as well. But I think that 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 thought process was overly generous. (laughs) Because apparently it's, it's a select few that can make the transition... To doing both. Then I start thinking about, you know, Jack Kirby. Jack Kirby came up with some phenomenal concepts, but some of the stories he wrote are either just far out or incomprehensible sometimes. Right. So he really wasn't a great writer. He was a great concept man, but he was not a great writer. And then I start thinking about the image people, the uh, Todd McFarlane's and the Rob Liefeld's and Jim Lee and people like that. And, And I really thought that... That showed us that putting the artwork way above the story doesn't work. That they need to both be treated the same way. Right. Because I, I, I think that, 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 that that's all they did. They, they emphasized the artwork and they didn't really emphasize story. And, and they came up with some pretty books that didn't really tell you too much. So I, I've, I've kind of turned the other way where I, where I don't necessarily think that the skills of being an artist translate to writing. And that's my very long-winded way of saying... I think Rich Buckler is an artist and he's not a writer. And right. I think he threw his hat in the ring and he gave it a shot, but ultimately he isn't really much of a writer. Uh, not really, and I think that's almost being generous. I think he's actually a bad writer from from this story. Uh, you know, some of the artwork is very nice. I think some of the artwork he tried to create like almost a golden age feel to it. Yeah, and some yeah. of some of the pages look almost a little too overpacked. There's just too much going on on the page. He could have spread it out a little bit. So, you know, it's almost like he tried to get too much, cram too much story in there. Uh, so, and I, I thought that hurt the artwork in the book, with the exception of several images and several pages. But I don't think this is up to the Rich Buckler standard that I'm used to. I'll agree with that. So, on a whole, you know, I, 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 I think Rich Buckler is one of my favorite artists. You and I have, have praised him many, many times. Uh, and I think we, we are on the same uh, page as far as his artwork goes in general. And having met him a couple of times and had a conversation with him, he really is a hell of a nice guy. And I hate to criticize him at all. But I think, you know, in this book he failed on several levels. Uh, not only the, the 
not only the uh, story, the writing of the story, some of the storytelling in the artwork. It's very, very difficult to follow. He's, like I said, I think he's just trying to do too much, and he's trying to move it along too quickly, not giving you a natural progression of the story in the artwork. So although there's a couple of pretty images in there, that's all it is. It doesn't have anything more. The story doesn't really go anywhere. Uh, this is about as low of a rating as I'm going to give a, Jim, a, a Rich Buckler book ever, I think. I think this is probably as low as he would, as low as he could fall, and I'm sorry to say that, but I, 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 I don't have much more to add to it than that. It's just, it's the story is almost incomprehensible, and the artwork, it doesn't tell a story. Like I said, there's some pretty images in there. I'm not going to take that away from it, but it doesn't tell a story. No, I agree. It, it does not. I walk away at the end of this issue, and uh, you know, I, I read it thoroughly, and then I had to, of course really go through it with a fine-tooth comb in order to write a synopsis. And at the end of the day, I can't tell you what the hell it's about. And that, to me, is, you know, that's, you know, that's the textbook definition of a bad story is when you walk away going, I'm, I'm sorry, I don't know what the hell the point of that was. So my grades on this would be, um, I really like the cover, um, although it's a little bit wonky. The dark-haired shield looks a little strange compared to everybody else is running toward you know us the reader and then the other the the black haired shield almost looks like he he tripped or something it's it's just kind of bizarre i know he's supposed to be flying but the perspective is a little weird and there's a lot of uh of just black space that kind of takes the the dynamic uh you know just the the whole nature of it down a a, a notch i i think it's done that way to maybe make the the heroes pop out that much more but it just looks a little bit wonky so um i'd probably go uh like a b minus i would say on the cover because it's good but it could be a lot better especially for rich buckler this could be a lot better cover um the interior art i i like it a lot i really do i enjoy it um i wonder if some of the problems with it are maybe the inker but i don't know on that um there's I generally like frank giacoya as well yeah I, I, I usually do too so I'm, I'm not sure where the the blame lies there um but there are panels i really like where, like when the dark haired shield uh, attacks on page two i mean that could very easily be a panel right out of uh, all-star squadron it's very reminiscent of all-star squadron and i really mm-hmm. liked uh, buckler's work on that book but then you you're right there's so much crammed into this issue that other pages like page three for example look like he it's just too busy there's too much being jammed onto one page just to get all the action beats thrown in and so it, it does create a very inconsistent feel. You've got a splash page or almost a splash page followed by a page with just way too many panels in it. And so it's, it creates a very uneven feel to the way the, the storytelling is progressing. But then page four is fantastic. So it's back and forth quite a bit through the whole thing. So art-wise, I'd probably say, I'd probably, again, I'd probably go with a B- minus on the art because you know it's fantastic because it's Buckler, but it's just not Buckler- as good as I know he can deliver. And then the story's a flat F. I mean, any story that does what this story does, it just throws things at you with no rhyme, no reason, no explanation. There's not a proper inter, not one of these characters is properly introduced to you uh, as, as the reader. There's no reason to care about any of them. 
You don't understand who they are, what they're doing, why they know each other, why they're coming together, why is the bad guy doing what he's doing. There's more than one bad guy. Both of their plans are incomprehensible. You don't know why the hell they're working together. It's just there, it's nothing but a series of loosely strung together events that ultimately come to nothing. It doesn't mean anything. When you get to the end of the issue, I, I had not one reason when I got to the end of this issue to go, oh, I can't wait to read the next one. I'm going to read the next one out of pure obligation to hope this shit gets better. But I walked away at the end of this one going, man, I don't know what the hell that was all about. And, you know, who are these assholes? So that's not a good sign for a first issue at all. And the two shields thing just made me nuts, made me absolutely nuts. Uh, as a matter of fact, you know what? There was a there's a panel here. I wish I'd made a note of this earlier. I'm going to have to flip through it real quick. So be patient with me. By the way, I do love the uh, the two page splash of uh, I want to call him the Marauder, and that's not his name. The Black Hood, where he sees the UFO in the sky. That was actually pretty cool. Yeah, that is. I agree. But there's a panel here. Damn it, where is it? Okay, here. Th- this made me nuts. When when a comic does something like this, this is an unforgivable sin to me. So all the heroes are standing around in the headquarters, and they're talking to Gay Pride Pith Helmet guy, whatever the hell his name was, and then we cut to that team. So we've got gay pride helmet pith, and pith helmet guy. We've that's got the apparently black, the comet. The comet. That's right. Okay, I couldn't remember his name. And the other shield, the red-haired shield. We cut to their perspective, and the comet is saying, uh, "We were just getting things underway, Jaguar." And then somebody says on the other team, "You just see it as a word balloon." He says, "Hey, Black Hood, I recognize you from the newspapers." But who's your friend in the red, white, and blue? And then the red-haired shield says, who is this guy, a comedian? Who the hell talked? Who who just spoke? You have no idea who it is that said, hey, Black, and said this thing. Is it the other shield making a crack at the red-haired shield? Is it the jaguar? Because that's who Comet just referred to. You have no idea who said that. Yeah. And so not, and that happens a lot through the course of this story is that the word balloons and things, it's its happening so fast and things are laid out so haphazardly that I spent more time trying to figure out the distinct voices of the characters and understand the flow of the dialogue. It, it just, it really just sucked any real enjoyment out of the story just trying to follow the friggin' thing. You know what I mean? Absolutely. Because my first inclination was to think that that was the black-haired shield taking a jab at the red-haired shield. But then if that's true, then why does the red-haired shield say what he says? Who is this guy, a comedian? Well, do they know each other? They don't. I don't get it. It makes no sense at all. So anyway, I'm, I hate to belittle or, or, you know, keep riding that point, but I felt like that was a, that was a pretty, that was a pretty big sticking point for this issue. That you have two, two heroes with the same name and you get nothing. Nothing yeah, uh, at all. It it didn't really bother me when I was reading it, but the more you pointed out, the more I'm saying, yeah, that's right. Yeah, so, I mean, can you imagine like picking up an issue of uh, of Justice League, for example, and you get the Batman that we know, and then you get the Batman like, did you see that picture? It was floating around Facebook a, a while back. Of it was supposed to be like, you know, what if Bill Finger, or I mean, not Bill Finger, but what if uh, Bob Kane invented Batman all by himself? And it was a picture of like this blonde haired guy in like a red leotard with like a black domino mask and like bat wings. Did you see that picture? No, I never did. 
But ima- imagine there being an issue of Justice like It's your first issue of Justice League ever, and you get two Batmans. And one of them's like the classic Batman, and then the other one's the, the guy I just described. Like, you know, blonde-haired, red leotard, Batwing Batman. Wouldn't you want to know, why, why, there, why the hell are there two heroes called Batman? Do they know each other? Is it father and son? Is it brothers? You know, nothing. No explanation at all. It just made me crazy. I'm like, what the, what the hell's going on? So, yeah. Uh, yeah, it's a, it's a, and story-wise, I'm sorry, Rich Buckler, but it's a, it's a flat F, buddy. It so, did, it did nothing for me. So what's your overall? The overall, well, what would, what would the, what would the average I be? Think, between I think you said B minus, B minus F. F, what would that be? That'd work out to like a C minus or something. I don't know. C minus seems about fair, I guess, as an overall grade, I guess. It's, it's, it's hard for me to, to say this just, uh, because it almost sounds like a joke, but I'm not going to be as generous as you. <laughs> okay. Uh, I'm not crazy about the cover. I, I don't like the cover that much. I, it, it looks to me like a haphazard. Uh, I don't thought you described it well when you called it a jam piece. Just mm-hmm. sticking images together in a way that they don't belong together. The angles that the people are shown from, the anatomy on people, the uh, angles that they're from, just it, it doesn't really seem to make sense. Uh, just to, like a couple of little things, like the the what's his name, the the comet guy. Yeah, his his two legs are two very very different sizes. <laughs> uh, same thing with the, with the fly. Yeah. Uh, what, well, the jaguar is, looks really weird up there. Yeah, the yeah. His, yeah. his perspective looks terrible. Uh, the the redhead shield. What, is he like doing the mambo? What, what's what's going on with him? <laughs> uh, you know, I I and I agree that what. The effort to use the black background is trying to make the colorful costumes pop, but I think it fails. Yeah, I do too. So uh, you you gave the the cover, I think, a B plus, and I think that was exceedingly generous because I'm going to put it as below average, and I'm going to say C minus on the cover. The uh, interior art, while there are some really nice images that, you know, you pointed out a couple of them. Uh, In particular, I like the way the... uh, Whatever they call them, these giant robot men that are coming out yeah. of the sea. I like the way they look. Yeah, they were there cool. Was, there was very, very cool image and and really, uh, I don't know, just just kind of that set the tone that I think they were looking for. Uh, the last page with Atlantis Atlantis rising is kind of cool, uh, but a lot of the pages are too busy. A lot of the pages just don't have any sequential storytelling about them. Uh, the pacing is poor, and some of the images just don't look enticing at all to me. So I, I'm going to say this is as bad of Rich Buckler art as I can remember off the top of my head. And i got to also go C-minus on it. And the overall story, I think you've hit it really on the head, and I don't want to just keep whipping this dead dog because it's an F. Yeah. So I would give the overall book a just a, a plain D. Not a plus, not a minus, just a D. And uh, if I if I wasn't so fond of Rich Buckler, I might have gone for an F. I tell you the you know not to go out on a totally sour note though. If you look at the bottom panel, of page twenty one, where the Jaguar is smashing that uh, the, the the it's like a big window for a brain on top of these Sentinel things, where he's 
you know, just roundhousing that uh, and busting that window. That's actually that's pretty cool. That I like because it reminds me a lot of uh, of Captain Marvel, just the color scheme of the Jaguar right there. But that's that looks like an image that would come right out of like All Star Squadron or something. That I like. Yeah, but... th- there's a few images that that once you said that about the uh, the All Star Squadron. Yeah, I, I could see a couple of the images that that look like they could belong in that book, and I think that goes to what I said earlier, where I, I think he was trying to almost be evocative of a golden age feel. Right. But they're they're not enough to to salvage it. Let me ask you. I wonder would I, see this would be something to be curious to actually ask him in real life if you could find like a really diplomatic way to ask you know this question. But I almost wonder when when creators work on something like this, you know, do you think this is him just kind of like slumming it just for like, you know, a little little, you know, side cash kind of thing. But he was actually working on another book at the time or some, you know, something like that, you think? Well, I'm thinking I'm thinking two things can happen. Either that where it's just, you know, just a paycheck to him or they could see it as this is my chance to cut loose and not have the restraints of the big two. Right. You know, not have the editorial restraints. I can really, you know, I'm going to really show everybody what I've got. And and I think sometimes that becomes almost too lofty of a goal. And they, they, they become victims of trying too hard. And it's possible that that's what happened to him here. Because it doesn't, I don't think he mailed it in. It's It fails, but I don't think it's for lack of effort. I, mean, I don't know. I, yeah, I honestly, I don't know how to feel about it. It doesn't look to me like he just threw it together. It reads like he threw it together. <laughs> right, yeah, exactly. But, but I, I don't, like I said, I, I don't think, to me it doesn't look like it fails for a lack of effort. It looks like it fails because it's just a poor, it, it looks like it fails because of poor choices. See, I'm looking and, here. And I don't, I don't think sorry. that's necessarily indicative of, of a lack of effort. See, I'm looking here at, um, at Mike's Amazing World to kind of get a feel for, you know, was he, did he have like a, I was looking to see, did he have like kind of a steady gig with the, with one of the big two and then maybe doing this as like a side project, but not according to the dates. It looks like he did uh, justice league two uh two twelve in March, uh, 83, the same month that this is cover uh, credited with. And then his next looks like six months to a year is pretty much devoted to red circle books. So it's odd, but you know, right in the middle of this, he did. Uh, let me see. Between Mighty Crusaders eight and nine, he did All Star Squadron thirty six that Mike and I covered not long ago on uh, on Tales of the JSA, and that's the one where that was. Uh, I think the first chapter. Yeah, the first chapter of the story where Captain Marvel comes to the All Star Squadron and fights Superman. That's some friggin' awesome shit, man. That's some of his best stuff. Mm. So. You know, it just it makes me wonder if maybe he just wasn't quite bringing his A game or so. I don't know. It's just it's so weird because he's not the like you say he's not the kind of guy that I would think would just ah eh, let me just collect a paycheck. I'm not really gonna give a full. You know, he just doesn't strike me as that kind of guy. So I'm not sure where the hell this book went wrong. Plus, I I think even even back then when when people did stuff, you know, not for you know companies like Dell or Charlton or something like that, but when they did stuff for upstart companies. And when the, when the upstart companies would would go out of their way to bring in the big names, mm-hmm. like like was apparently going on here, I suspect that in order to do so, they had to, you know, they had to compensate them well to get them to come over. 
Oh, you would think so, yeah. And and my thought is probably that they didn't have the uh, the functioning cash to say, you know, here's here's double your normal rate, come and work for us. In which case, if they if they want to entice them to come over, it's more than likely that what they said was, here we're going to give you lower than your normal rate, but we're going to give you X percentage of the profits. Right. You know, it's it, like a back end deal, which which would say it's even more to these creators, uh, you know, well being to have these books succeed, which makes it even more likely that they would not mail it in. And and this is all speculation on my part. I don't have any working knowledge of the, any of this as facts, but that's just the way I'm thinking about it. I'm thinking Red Circle doesn't have money to say, hey, we'll give you double what Marvel gives you. Right. Or what DC gives you. And see, so, that's what kind of makes me wonder if, you know, there, then there's not a certain amount of, well, I'm not going to bring my A game then. You know but, what I mean? But, it, but if, if there is some sort of a back-end deal, then he says, then he might be saying to himself, hey, whatever I do for Marvel and DC, I just get my paycheck and I'm done. This, if this sells well, then I could, you know, I can put a new uh, extension on my house. You know, yeah. that kind of thing. I, I don't know. But it it's would possible. be very curious to to you know to try to get an answer. But you know how do you how do you broach that? You know how do you talk to a creator and go, okay, so here's the deal. You got this book you put out back in '83. Kind of sucks. Tell me the story. You know what no, I mean? No, I, how, I, how do you broach that? You know, I already I mean? know as we've talked about that uh, Rich Buckler is not comfortable coming on and uh, and being interviewed. So right. <laughs> this is never going to happen. But I think. Uh, if if I if I were to be able to speak to him, I would ask him exactly. You know, I'd ask him straight out. What, what kind of deal? You know, you're working for Marvel. You're working for DC. You know, these are the big two companies. It's as fans, the companies that we all want you to work for. Uh, and then then Red Circle Comics comes along and you start drawing for them. What kind of deal did they give you, or what kind of arrangement did they make to pull you away from the big two? Right. And and then you know then I would start you know you. you you'd hope that the answer would lead you to more questions because he might say, well, you know, I, I was working for the other two and I was doing everything they gave me and I had a little extra free time. So I kind of did this as a lark or it could be, you know, I thought this was my opening to have some sort of creator own thing where I was going to make some huge money. You know, yeah, I mean, whatever the answer would be, would be the thing that would probably lead you to more questions. Right. Not that I've ever interviewed a creator, uh, <laughs> on the air anyway so I, it's not like I'm, I'm mr interview but i think that's that's where i would go with it and just see what what he gave to because you because you wouldn't want to insult him with your question right that's what i'm saying yeah i mean you know ultimately that what i'd want to know is hey you know the, what what's the deal with this but yeah exactly that's why i said you know i'd, I'd want to be very carefully how i how i would phrase that because yeah i you know at the end of the day i'm a huge fan of this guy so it's it was actually painful to discover that, wow, this really was not good. You know what I mean? Because, you know, you, you want to think of your heroes as, you know, larger than life and, and more or less infallible. And that was not the case here because, yeah. Yeah, but it it's, was, uh, uh, like I say, you know, if you ask them, he might say, yeah, you know, I didn't really have the time. I couldn't dedicate too much time to it. And that's why it doesn't read the way I would have liked it to have. He might, he might give you that as an answer. Right. Or he might say, are you kidding me? I put this to paper. I thought it was going to be the greatest thing ever. <laughs> Piss off, kid. You bother me. I, I, I mean, I would, I would be loath to ask him any question that might even possibly insult him. Because when I spoke to him, he, he seemed to me to be one of the nicest guys he, you, know, you could possibly meet. 
Right. So I, I would I would be devastated if I asked him a question and I found out that I insulted him with it. Right. So yeah, I would not want to do that either. I, I would be much more inclined to bring him on and talk about Giant Size Superstars number one, which is one of my all time favorite comics. But when I asked him to come on and talk about that, he told me he doesn't like to do interviews live. So that was that. Mm. But what are you going to do? So I think we're done with this one. I think we've pretty much dragged it through the mud and beat the <laughs> shit out of it. So that's that's our Leftovers episode. I hope you liked it. <laughs> I, I, I had fun doing it. And and it managed to keep us busy for, oh, what is it, about five months? <laughs> from when we started it to when we finished it. Well, the first part of this, the, the part from the uh, the Thor book, uh-huh. we, you and I recorded that during Assistant Editor's Month. That was what? That was like... July? Oh, man. That was that long ago then, wasn't it? Yeah, because it wasn't... Guardians was just coming out or had just come out or something like that. Yeah. I'm well, curious to see how it, it, it all works out so well because now it's just coming out on DVD. <laughs> oh, this was fun. Yeah, it always is. That's why we do it. It's not. It might surprise everybody, but it's not for the overwhelming paychecks. <laughs> all right, buddy. Well, we out. Yeah, I think we're done. Thank you so much for listening to our show, and we hope you'll join us each and every week for more good old-fashioned comic book back issue awesomeness. You can contact Back to the Bins to leave feedback, comments, questions, suggestions, and criticisms via email at backtothebins at gmail.com or by visiting the Two True Freaks podcast group on Facebook. Back to the Bins is produced in association with the Two True Freaks podcast, which you may find at www.twotruefreaks.com and is a registered trademark of DeManzocor of Milan, Italy all rights reserved take a moment to stop by and support their other fine podcasts won't you thanks and we'll see you next week i i don't know that's gonna see that's the you know this is always the every two every two two months i go into uh deep evil hibernation because of work